0: Mountain cold refreshment made to chill 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado Celebrate responsibly
1: Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day Make sure you subscribe if you want more And leave us some feedback Away we go Initialize sequence Welcome to
2: The Baldcast A production of John Bald Baldface Truth
1: How do you solve a problem? Where do you look for answers? I guess that's two questions But that's how I'm starting the show today. Because there is a glaring problem in college athletics. It's off the rails. The NCAA has lost control. Ultimately, you've got the different conference commissioners coming out in the last couple weeks. And George Piafcoff, the Pac-12 commissioner, probably will come out tomorrow and address the idea that uh, the NCAA needs congressional intervention when it comes to name, image, likeness. Now, I have long considered myself one of those people Who looks over at lawmakers and goes, hey, they've got more important things to do than to meddle in college athletics. They've got bigger fish to fry than dealing with college football or basketball or the NCAA as an entity. But I uh, am listening to the chorus coming from the commissioners across college athletics. And Charlie Baker, the recently hired head of Belay, the new guy on the job, he comes from the legislative world. We've been presented as fans of college athletics with uh, a shifting landscape. The same our feet. It's been difficult in the last year or two to be a diehard college football fan or college basketball fan or to believe in the NCAA at all. Why? Because we're seeing it look more and more like professional athletics. Players are getting paid, coaching salaries out of control, media rights conversations dominating the landscape. But I don't want to get into that today. What I want to get into off the top of the show today is trying to figure out why the college athletic directors and conference commissioners feel like they've lost control of name, image, likeness. Certainly, you have a variety of states, more than 30 states, that have individual laws on the books when it comes to name, image, likeness. You've got programs that are long-standing winners in the in this ecosystem, saying, "Hey, uh, this isn't working. Uh, people are buying players." you got the players themselves who are mostly happy. There are some gray areas, and certainly I think uh, we're on new ground, and this is a Wild West. Uh, I've heard it de- described, the landscape described as a Wild West by more than one coach, player, athletic director. Um, but it's an interesting development today. Yahoo Sports' Ross Dellinger broke the story this morning. Three U.S. senators, a Republican and two Democrats, have now released a bipartisan discussion draft of federal legislation that would standardize name, image, and likeness nationally. Now, it was surprising because you've got, uh, you've got a Democrat, two Democrats, and a Republican that are partnering together to create what is called the College Athletes Protection and Compensation Act. Oh, yes, Compensation Act. Now, Cory Booker, uh, Senator Cory Booker, Senator Jerry Moran... Senator Richard Blumenthal coming together in, in, uh, in a partnership that could be a positive movement for the NCAA. And it is basically um, one of many discussion drafts that have, been, that have emerged in the wake of college athletics asking for help. It's only a draft. It's not been introduced in Congress. Uh, the timing of the final draft and a potential bill, not clear, but we're in critical times for the NCAA. And I know a lot of us have been consumed and focused on the Pac-12 and their media rights saga. and It's just been a ridiculous circus-like atmosphere, a lot of disinformation, a lot of bad reporting, a lot of uh, hand-wringing. Of course, the Pac-12 conference, not an innocent party and all of that. But going on in the background, or maybe more important than even the media rights discussion with the Pac-12 conference, has been the idea that, the NCAA as an entity has lost its teeth. It's got no investigative authority, really. doesn't have subpoena power. It's lost control of the college football playoff. It doesn't have command of that. That's its own entity, owned and operated and run by the conferences itself. And, you know, in the last three or four years, the NCAA and a lot of leaders in college have been nudging Congress, saying, hey, we need federal legislation. We need, uh, We need a law here. We need... We need uh, oversight. We can't fix this on our own. I've looked at this and I've long rolled my eyes and said, come on, the NCAA should be able to fix this. The college entities themselves should be able to fix this. But it's become apparent in the last couple of months, and in, in particular the last couple of weeks, that the NCAA is an entity. And what is the NCAA? It's, a, it's not this evil empire based in Indianapolis. The NCAA is Portland State. It's the University of Portland. It's Oregon State. It's the University of Oregon. It's Washington, Washington State. It's The NCAA is comprised of the members of the NCAA. And so what you have going on is, uh, you know, federal intervention, congressional intervention that would give athletes lifetime scholarships, meaning that if they enter into a deal with a university, they're protected. That scholarship cannot be revoked. It's interesting. It would permit the school to restrict an athlete from entering a uh, Uh, You know, if if they uh, violated the code of conduct or were charged with a crime. But uh, the legislation that's being proposed, it's got really four tentacles to it. One, it would uh, permit the universities to restrict athletes from entering into deals that are contrary to the belief system or the code of conduct or the morality of the school. So that's really an interesting little tentacle. It would also prohibit compensation to be used for inducements with recruits or retention of college players. So you're you, you are talking about some of the collectives have said, hey, our goal is to retain our current players. Well, it would prohibit compensation to be used for that retention purpose. That's really interesting. It also would prohibit schools from re- representing athletes in NIL ventures or influencing an athlete's choice of a representative. So the school's got to be hands-off when it comes to the particular ventures or the choice of a representative. Now, and this proposed, uh, you know, bill that would, you know, this draft discussion also proposes that schools would be able to prohibit athletes from engaging in NIL ventures that are concurrent with college athletic events or competition, meaning you got to be a student-athlete first, athlete-student, student-athlete, then you're an endorser. Now, the athletes would also have to report their NIL contracts to the school within seven days of entering them and recruits, would be required to disclose all current and expired NIL contracts to the schools before enrollment. Uh, NIL contracts would not be subject to open records laws at the federal and state level, according to the Act, but the legislation would require schools to submit an annual report of their deals, the average and total of the contracts that could be used for a national public database. To me, it's a step in the right direction. So I have to ask you a question. How are you feeling about this? Because I I remain a little uneasy with the idea of you know congr- congressional intervention, with the idea of the NCAA going, we can't handle this, we need help with the idea that you know this is so far off the rails that, that there's no bringing it back. but at the same time, I'm not comfortable with the landscape where there appears to be open cheating, players are being bought, the you know some of the collectives are a joke, some of them, operate, you know, in the cloak of secrecy. We don't even know what they're doing. Division Street, Oregon's collective, you know, God bless it. Like, it's, it's, you know, responsible for retaining Bo Nix and operating at a level that uh, obviously is, uh, you know, high-level high stuff in the NIL space. It's probably the most powerful collective in the Pac-12 conference, if not the country. It's one of the most powerful in the country. We don't know anything about it. We don't know who's making the decisions. And there's some level of that that should make us all uncomfortable. I was talking in the last couple of months a lot with the boosters at SMU, the Boulevard. That's their collective at SMU. They did an expansive study of the University of Oregon's NIL Division Street Enterprise, and they determined that if SMU joins the Pac-12 conference, that its collective would be the number two most wealthy collective in the conference. Is Oregon, Oregon State, Washington, Washington State, I mean, are all the other members of the Pac-12 conference comfortable knowing, hey, uh, without any oversight, without any legislation, this is essentially going to turn into which collective has the most money? That's where, that, your recruiting rankings, you might as well just rank who are the most, who are the wealthiest collectives in the conference. I do think that oversight is needed. I had hoped for a long time that the NCAA would figure it out itself, but... I've heard so much bellyaching from the conference commissioners in the last two weeks. Brett Yormark, um, Greg Sankey, uh, you you look at the ACC, George Kleofkoff's going to get up on that podium tomorrow. You better believe he's going to say, hey, I believe we need congressional oversight. Somebody's going to, one of the national reporters is going to ask him about it. They are in, uh, they are in unity on that. And they are saying we can't figure this out and we can't help it. Now, I do think they've got the attention of lawmakers because they have positioned this in a way wisely. The conference commissioners have positioned this debate in a way that helps make the debate less about players getting paid and more about players getting protected. There is a uh, medical care element to the to the to the proposal that is uh, going to come forth. Um, there is um, a, a provision that would allow underclassmen to enter a professional draft and then retain their eligibility if they return to school within 7 days of the draft ending and they don't receive compensation from a sports agent or team or an agent so is it is it possible that a player could be drafted in the NFL in the NBA and then go I'm going to return to school within you know and and go back to school the NCAA this this act is saying that you would re- retain your eligibility Now, keep in mind, there's been a whole bunch of legislation or proposed legislation. I think this is the eighth time that there's been a draft. So there's a lot to be worked out here. But I just find it interesting that lawmakers are following what the conference commissioners and the NCAA have asked them to do. They have asked them to intervene, and they apparently look like they're going to intervene. Uh, uh, Another part of the the draft that the three senators put forth or are working on is um, an act that would require the schools to cover athlete medical expenses for two years after their final competition. And there would be a medical trust fund to cover long-term injuries. So a lot of college athletes, you know, and Booker, Booker is a former tight end at Stanford, right? So he's seen this up close. It makes sense to me that he is, he is interested and involved in this. That said, I'm still looking at this, and I'm going, man— Why is it that our sports world wants to feel so much like the real world? It's true. You know, sports is supposed to be an escape. But all this media rights garbage that we've been dealing with, you and I have been dealing with, all of the conference realignment garbage we've been dealing with, you, me, Bill Walton, he doesn't like it. None of us likes it. We don't even like talking about it. I'm so tired of talking about media rights and all that garbage, and yet it's still fundamentally a big piece of my job. And so, you know, I'm really excited about Pac-12 Media Day tomorrow. And I know NIL discussion and this federal intervention is going to come up. It was a major story today. You know, all the major media outlets are covering it. Everybody's saying this is big. It's a big deal because college athletics is crying for help. And you're watching it happen. As a college fan, come on, you have to be looking across the landscape going, I miss what college athletics used to be. Even if you're simultaneously going, hey, I'm okay with players earning money. Because I am. Like, I, I don't want to stand in the way of a player having an endorsement deal. It doesn't seem fair that a 17- or 18-year-old kid should not be able to earn. I agree with Chip Kelly, who says, hey, why, why can a baseball player get drafted at you know, 17, 18 years old, go off and, and earn a living, and a college football player can't cut an endorsement deal with a deodorant company? Like, I get that. I get the logic in that. But my problem is, look, I'm You and me are turning towards college athletics, looking for an escape from regular life, and it's looking too much like regular life these days, isn't it? You've got senators involved. You've got uh, yeah, a, a former governor who's now the head of the NCAA. More and more, the commissioners are not people who have worked as an athletic director or even played a college sport. They're, you know, they're in the worlds of, of sales and marketing and media. And, you know, I long, I do long for the days when, you know, it gets back to being about sports. And maybe this is the path back. Maybe the, the guardrails get put on with NIL. The Pac-12 gets a media-right deal and everything settles down. You know, expansion is cooled at least till 2029, 2030 when it all pops up again. But it's just felt a little too complicated. And I had hoped that we weren't going to see Senators... Uh, you know, involved in our college sports. Just feels too much like, what, healthcare, the economy, uh, you know, world peace. In the end, I, you know, I, I'm excited tomorrow to talk with Bo Nix, the Oregon quarterback. Not about NIL, not about the, uh, the realignment, not about USC and UCLA and where they're going, but I want to talk to Bo Nix about playing last season, playing hurt. I want to talk to Bo Nix about, you know, the great receiving core that he's got at Oregon this season. I want to talk to Jonathan Smith, the Oregon State coach, about, you know, how the culture of his program and how much he fostered it. And by the way, what is he reading these days? You know, what what is where do the coaches go to get coached? How much fun was that last season for Jonathan Smith? Did he enjoy it? You know, that's part of something that I have really watched over the years as you watch coaches high stress job, coaches who are competitors, like Jonathan Smith, like Kyle Whittingham, like Dan Lanning. Coaches who are competitors, how much do they enjoy it? Because they always say the losses hurt more than the wins sort of motivate or inspire. You know, the losses are more painful than the wins are joyful. Did Jonathan Smith enjoy winning 10 games last season? Did he stop and take a look around? Not that he has to take a victory lap publicly and look like a guy who's gloating or look like a guy who's got his eye off the ball. Like, you don't want that. You have a lot of coaches who will tell you that they eat drink, sleep football. They get to the office at 4.30 in the morning. They're the last one to leave. Why? Because when things are bad, they don't want you to point at them and go, hey, they weren't working hard enough. But I got to know, how much were these guys enjoying it? How excited are they that football is going to start back up again here in a bit? Big games, big stakes. It's a lot of fun. See, I'm going to look around when the season starts. And if you're like me, You're not going to be thinking about NIL. You're not going to be thinking about the media rights deal and distributions and realignment. You're going to be thinking about the great competition we're seeing on the field. Up next, Andrew Percival on that note. He is a schedule guru. He's looking at the Pac-12 conference. What does he see from a data and analytics point when he examines the college football schedules? Leave it here. you got the BFT. I wanted to do a very different show today, given that Pac-12 Media Day is tomorrow. You're going to want to be here, 3 to 6 p.m., for Pac-12 Media Day, as I will be interviewing Dan Lanning, Jonathan Smith. I'll be interviewing Bo Nix right here on the show, Caleb Williams, Michael Penix Jr. Coach Prime was supposed to be on the BFT and make his debut. He will not be there. Uh, but I wanted to do a different show today in uh, kind of the run-up to it. And I wanted to bring on our next guest. Andrew Percival is his name. He worked for Major League Baseball in analytics and data. He has uh, worked in uh, financial technology and uh, data and analytics. And he's geeked out on college football schedules. And I stumbled to him, uh, stumbled upon him on social media a couple of years ago. He's a really good follower. He's doing something really cool with college football schedules. But I wanted to bring him on and talk about what he sees in the Pac-12, what he sees in the SEC 10, and have him kind of explain his journey, his path to, uh, you know, turning a career, a hobby into a career or a business, a side hustle, so to speak. Andrew Percival joining us. Andrew, how are you?
0: I'm pretty good. How are you, John?
1: Doing well, doing well. Media day tomorrow. And I just thought this was a good – I saw your tweets last week about, you know, each of the schedules and kind of some things that jumped out at you. But before we get into that – Let's get into how you became the schedule guy on Twitter because you're putting these things out and they're pretty cool. And I'll tell our listeners how to get one if they wanna if they wanna order one at the end of this. But give us kind of the background. You know, with your background in baseball, your background uh, in your other career, how did you sort of fall into the scheduling stuff?
0: Um, well, it, it started um, around 2011 when um, in the uh, the dog days of summer, when we're all just counting those days till college football season starts. I decided to have some fun with an Excel template and put together a Pac-12 schedule with um, merged in, in a very detailed uh box-like grid with all the logos pasted in there and tried to make it aesthetically pleasing but also informative as far as the games that we all had to look forward to in the fall and um, had a lot of fun distributing them to friends and family around um, around the office and, and relatives and bantering with fellow fans um, of the Pac-12 and then the next year um, decided to start making them for, for all 12 conferences so it's really um, become a, a labor of love.
1: Yeah In. You know, you you put the schedules out, and I gotta wonder. You know, when you first started doing it, you probably considered it a hobby. Is it still a hobby in your mind? Is it, or is it pivoted into a business?
0: Oh, it's it's absolutely a hobby. Um, I uh, I work in fintech, and I'm very very happy doing that. Um, all of my college football work is uh, purely purely for the love of it. All
1: right, let's start with just some takeaways on your schedules, and uh, you know, I'll go conference by conference if you don't mind, and. You just kind of tell me what you saw, what you noticed. Um, you know, let's start with the Pac-12 conference. As you, as you look at the grid and as you uh, start to drill down on it, what jumps out at you?
0: Well, um, big picture view, a, a very typical conference schedule, um, and, and that's something that doing the schedule exercise year after year really teaches you is that the, the big picture scheduling patterns for, for all the conferences do not change very much. Um, everybody's – all the P5s are looking to play – seven home games, Um, and um, so with with the Pac-12, you have 27 non-conference games, 12 of them against Power 5 opponents, 15 of them against G5 opponents, and nine against FCS opponents. That's all very typical. Um, Utah and Colorado play two P5s. Oregon State, UCLA, and Washington State do not play a P5. And then um, there were two random Power 5 matchups that really jumped out at me, and one of them, Auburn um, goes to Cal, which I think just from a, as, as we picture like a, a real SEC program like Auburn marching to Berkeley, that's just kind of a fun thing to visualize. I'm excited for that one. And then uh, Wisconsin goes to Pullman um, on September 9th, and that is the first Power Five opponent to go to Pullman since 1998. And so, as a uh, even though I'm a, I'm a Husky fan, but I'm, I'm really happy that the Cougs are able to book that that series and, and that's difficult for, for them. So um, I was thrilled to see that. Um, there are a number of strong group of five teams on the schedule. Like they, there are most years, but we've got Boise state, Fresno state, San Diego state on, on the schedule. And then um, there, there are very few unwinnable games. Um, I, I was really only, only able to identify two: Notre Dame, Stanford, TCU, Colorado, um, probably long shot games for the conference, but among the contenders, and we'll talk about that a little bit in a second, but there is no equivalent to um, Oregon and Georgia this year. So um, I, th- I think it's it's definitely a, a schedule. The league was to level up and, and perform well. Um, they, they could come out of it um, looking looking pretty pretty strong. And and, and then um, another meaningful nugget on, on the conference schedule: USC has a bye before the Pac-12 championship game, and and that is um, because of the the Stanford-Notre Dame matchup the last week of the season, which causes kind of a trickle-down effect. Um, And so USC has a bye. So if they were to make it to Las Vegas, they would be facing an opponent um, that either has six or seven days of rest versus USC's 14 days of rest. So that that certainly jumped out at me as well.
1: Yeah, 100%. Uh, That jumped out at me right when I saw the schedule. I went, wait a minute, two buys and a buy in front of the uh, conference championship game. Andrew Percival is with us. He's the schedule guy, uh, more or less, when it comes to college football. But you also pointed out in your tweet that there were five crucial non-conference games. USC-Notre Dame, Texas Tech-Oregon, Florida-Utah, Utah-Baylor, Washington-Michigan State. You think, and I agree with you, that all teams will be favored in all of those games. Those games feel big, don't they?
0: They are absolutely huge, and 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 non-conference play as a whole for every league is critical. Um, and if if you look at um, the Pac-12 going back to twenty from twenty eleven to twenty sixteen, the Pac-12 winning percentage in regular season non-conference games was seven fifty two, but if you look at 2017 to 2022, um, the the Pac-12's winning percentage in regular season non-conference games fell from 752 to 657 that's almost a 100 point dip wh- while the other uh, four power five leagues all held um pretty constant from from where they were so um there's certainly been a perception that the league is is down and you can very precisely identify the year when it took that turn and so um a, a strong non-conference performance in those 36 games would um position the league um would, would just elevate the the perception um and and the analytics of, of all of the league play that follows. And so of those games, the scary thing about them is that none of them are are slam dunks. Um, I, if, with my analytics model, I've got um, USC Notre Dame as a 50-50 game, and then the other four are between 60 and 70% win probability, so that means that 5-0 and o is unlikely, but um, if they were to, to to make that, that would be absolutely huge for the league. Um, and then um, beyond those five, um, I mean, we are talking about 36 non-conference games, and so it's not all about the, the, the big power five matchups among contenders, because part of the Pac-12's problem in recent years has been they've dropped a lot of games to G5 opponents, and um, that's going to happen on occasion, but it can't happen at nearly the rate that it has, and so among the among the group of contenders and and I bucket the contenders the same as, as everybody else does with USC, Oregon, Utah, Washington, Oregon state. And I, I put UCLA in that group as well. Um, you've got five, what I'm calling, um, hold serve critical, hold serve games, Washington, Boise state, Oregon state, San Jose state, San Diego state, Oregon state, coastal Carolina, UCLA, and UCLA, San Diego State. A few of those are on the road. Um, I've got them all between 75 and 87% win probability for the Pac-12. So 5-0 and oh is possible, not a guarantee, uh, but it certainly would be fantastic. Um, and then beyond that, um, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a top-to-bottom Pac-12 fan. I mean, I, I, I root for the Pac-12 in every non-conference game. Um, Oregon, but um, although that that may be changing moving <laughs> forward, but um, five icing on the cake games. You've got Cal, Auburn, Washington State, Wisconsin, Arizona State, Oklahoma State. Arizona State, Fresno State; those are all four of those are at home, and then Arizona at Mississippi State. Those are all games that um, the Pac-12, maybe with the exception of the, of the Fresno State game, I think the Pac-12 might be a slight underdog. So it sure would be nice to uh, to win a few of those as well.
1: You mentioned the five contenders: USC, Oregon, Utah, Washington, Oregon State. Let's focus on them. Um, you know, they will not really play each other until Oregon State plays Utah in, in uh, about week six of the season. And then, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven 10, 11 becomes just uh, all these crossovers between those great teams. But what jumps out from those schedules? Who has it easiest? Who has it hardest? So
0: it's certainly... There, there are two that really stood out, um, one who stood out as the easiest, one who stood out as the hardest, and then everything in the middle I think is debatable. But um, to me, the clear easiest among the group of contenders is Oregon State. Um, so uh, depending on how we bucket UCLA, they have either two or three contenders at home, only one on the road. They miss USC, who most of the analytic Analytics models we will see as the, the, the number one contender. I mean, this group of five is bunched pretty closely, but if you had to pick one, I think they're probably the favorite. So Oregon State misses them. They don't have any power five non-conference opponents. They have the latest buy of the contenders and it's, and it's not too late. It's, it's week nine, October 21. So I think that, that, that works to their advantage before, uh, before, you know, the gauntlet towards the end. Um, they do have five Pac-12 road games and they do have UW and Oregon back to back, um, November 18th and and November 24th. Um, so their toughest game is is definitely the the civil war at Austin. um, you know, if everybody is how we think they are, but if Oregon state really is a, a top 20 caliber team, and they certainly looked like it at the end of last year, this is a schedule that, um, will, will help them, um, as they make a run. Um, and then, uh, yeah. So on the easiest, and I think there, there's also an argument for USC because they've got um, they've got two of the contenders at home, three if you count UCLA, only one on the road. That's Oregon. They've got five Pac-12 home games. They've got Washington at home in in what will be UW's second consecutive road game. UW's at Stanford the week before. Um, so I, I would put USC in there. Um, and then, I mean, that's not to make not even mention the, the bye if they are able to get to las vegas but the complicating factor with that is that they've got by far the hardest non-conference game um in the conference and that's um at notre dame october 14th and so it's like if you're looking just conference play i think you can certainly make a case uh for usc to be
1: included with oregon state but um if we're going uh, holistic schedule I, I think um it's definitely oregon state how about the most difficult Pac-12 schedule among the contenders? It looks like Utah to me. You, you you agree with that?
0: They're the only contender to play every other contender, and then three of them are on the road, and then
1: they've got the two T5s on top of that.
0: They've got Oregon State on the road on a Friday. Um, and so I, I think, um, I think you know, on, on, as far as the schedule stuff, it's it's the Utes who I think, you know, even if they were to maintain, you know, the same qualities last year, I think that on that alone they're going to have a hard time winning the league.
1: All right, on your Pac-12 schedule poster, you have something called accomplishment points. T- you know, tell our listeners what it what what accomplishment points are and and uh, why you why you geek out on that. Um, so, so that 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 is a graphic depicting how
0: successful each program has been in in stacking the trophy case since 1946 and um it's a formula based on national championships major bowl wins and um ap top 20 finishes and to be honest with you the the um i, I originally made it as a way to um, you know even though i i i fashion myself as a as a serious objective analyst i mean i have a lot of fan in me too and i'm a washington <laughs> fan so i made it originally as a way to troll um, the Oregon fans in my life and and living up here in Seattle. We're certainly around a lot of them. And um, so the the original schedule that came out in 2011 had a lot more purple than green on it. It did kind of backfire on me as uh, certainly the next four years, um, Oregon – had some of their the best seasons in their history and really started closing that history gap. And so um, you'll see. I mean, it, it'll state the obvious and that USC's trophy case is, is pretty stacked. And then beyond that, you've got Washington, UC, Oregon, um, and, and then um, it kind of goes down from there. So um, those those are fun to look at. Um, and and the just data visualization and, and, and stuff like that, um, I, I like to geek out on that.
1: All right, coming up, I'm going to ask Andrew who he thinks is going to make the Pac-12 championship game in Vegas. He's run some numbers. He's looked at the schedule. He's poured over it like nobody else. Who gets to Vegas? More with Andrew Percival coming up. We're talking college football schedules, Pac-12 schedules. Again, Pac-12 Media Day tomorrow in Las Vegas. This show will be live 3 to 6 p.m. Dan Lanning will be on the show. Bo Nix will be here. Uh, Jonathan Smith will be here. Shador Sanders, the Colorado quarterback will be here. Caleb Williams, the reigning Heisman Trophy winner, all will be here. But which two Pac-12 teams will make it back to Las Vegas at the end of the season? Andrew Percival has been kind enough to join us uh, and stick around for a second segment. Andrew, you uh, geek out on the schedules, you look at all of the analytics, you run models on this stuff. Who makes it to Las Vegas, in your mind? Who is most likely to get to Vegas in the conference championship game come December?
0: It's a really really hard question um so my my the 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 analytics model i do a consensus of a bunch of computer rankings out there um and convert those into point point spreads and win probabilities for every fbs versus fbs game and so that kind of perspective on the sport you you tend to what tends to happen um, especially if teams are bunched in quality like um certainly that the top Four to five contenders in the Pac-12 are. Um, it really comes down to um, you know a, a bounce here or there. Uh, it sees USC, Oregon, Utah, Washington, Oregon State all very close. And so um, I haven't even produced um, conference win projections yet, but I would say, based on Utah having clearly the hardest schedule. Um, and then USC being probably the best team. I would, I would pick USC and Oregon to make the, the conference. If I had to pick two teams to make the conference championship game, those would be the two, um, that I go with. Um, but I think, um, that that schedule with Oregon State certainly gives them gives them a chance.
1: Andrew Percival is our guest. Uh, he is uh, the schedule guy on social media. He also sells these posters of your uh, your favorite conference uh, schedule. It Gets a whole grid. It would be a cool thing to have on your on your wall, or if your of uh, your uh, man cave, or if you've got a college football fan in your life, it would be a great gift in front of the college football season. Um, Andrew, let's let's pivot a little bit to. Uh, looking at some of the other conferences. The SEC, what jumped out at you as you looked at the SEC schedule for the year?
0: Um, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a typical typical SEC schedule where a lot of the teams are only playing nine Power 5 opponents, and that's eight conference and then typically one P5. and And they do that because they expect to win the the a very high percentage of the non-conference games that they do play so that just kind of elevates the 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 entire competition and so the the metaphor that i'll use on that is you know they, they say eight times eight is 64 nine times seven is 63 so our eight is better than your nine as far as their justification of playing on the eight conference games nine p5s so you've got the alabama texas non-conference clash which is huge You've got LSU, Florida State, non-conference clash, which is huge. Um, and then you have a clear contender in the East, in Georgia. Um, and then the top contenders in the West all miss Georgia. So there's nothing really game-changing about that. Um, I would say, it, you know, it's, it's a very typical, uh, very typical SEC schedule where um, highly likely it's Alabama or LSU out of the West against Georgia in the East. Um, and just um, you know how much margin for error the league has collectively will, will come down to those that Alabama, Texas, and LSU, Florida State game especially, Texas A&M, Miami. I mean you've got you've got fun non-conference all around, but um, you know not not uh, not not a ton. It's it's a typical SEC schedule.
1: When you look at you know those schedules, um, you know there are some big games there and. Do you do you th- have like big games this season in the SEC that just jump off the grid at you?
0: Yeah, Al- Alabama, Texas, Alabama, LSU, Georgia, Tennessee is a little bit later this year. That's November eighteenth. Um, the Florida, Utah non-conference game. Um, you've got um, the, the the usual Florida Georgia showdown. Um, and as as far as as, as misses go, um, with, with With the top three teams in the West all missing Georgia, um, there's really nothing that noteworthy.
1: You know, it's funny when we think about the four-team playoff because if I could get you in front of the selection committee, I, I, you know, and give you a chance to lobby them, you know, looking at the schedules, you know, the numbers you've run over the years, the data, you know, is there a message that you would give to the selection committee, or something that's frustrated you as an analytics person?
0: Oh, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, I I think the selection committee has done an excellent job. Does that mean that they put the four best teams in the college football playoff every year? Not even close. Um, the, the, the analytics will often present a perspective on the sport that, um, contradicts the polls to, to a great extent. The most extreme example being in 2015 when you had a Big Ten championship game played between Michigan State and Iowa um, brought about by an incredible upset that Michigan State had over Ohio State late in the year. But you had that Big Ten championship game where you had two teams that the analytics models tended to carry anywhere from number 10 to as low as number 30 in the case of Iowa in the country, playing ranked as, I don't remember exactly exactly what it was, but it may have been three against four with the winner obviously going to the college football playoff. And um, in that case, I mean, there's the selection committee. They, they Ohio State is, is far better than both teams, but um, it's, it's not their job to put Ohio State in the field. That would be, you know, kind of the antithesis to what the competition and the, and the standings are all about. So I think they've done a great job. I think if you got them in a room and forced them to um, bet their mortgages on uh the the extent to which their rankings would would predict game outcomes i think you might get some different rankings but um i i think they've i think they've done a great job i think they've treated the pac12 fairly even though the pac12 has has missed out um since 2016 um and i think that um you know they they do a good job in in terms of messaging you know you you evaluate the whole schedule um you don't necessarily you know automatically Make declarations based on how many conference games, how many P5 opponents, you need to evaluate the whole schedule holistically. Um, and, and I think I think they've done a good job.
1: Andrew Percival, our guest, the Big Ten Conference. Let's hit them real quick. You know, what do you see? What jumped out at you as you put together that schedule?
0: Um, so, so with the Big Ten, um, you have one big non-conference game. That's Ohio State at Notre Dame. I mean, so that's that's a big one as, as we think about that playoff race, and it's essentially an elimination game where you're trying to win a P5 conference with zero one losses. So if Ohio state were to drop that game and then maybe drop one in big 10 play and then go on to win the big 10, um, that could be, that could be big. Uh, Michigan does not play anybody in their P5 um, or they don't play anybody strong in their non-conference. They've got East Carolina, UNLV and Bowling green. That was the result of a cancellation with a series with UCLA that Michigan canceled because they wanted to, to keep playing seven home games they got in kind of an odd even odd year pairing with with the home game count so um as a a ucla fan i'm i was certainly you know i would certainly be frustrated by that and as a college football game i'm frustrated that michigan's not challenging themselves more um you've got penn state west virginia that's a fun um, historic non-conference game um and then in the west um where, where, I mean, this league's a little bit like the SEC, where the, the, the macro storylines are the same every year. Where you got the strong East, the, the less strong West, um, and um, in in the in the West, you've got oh, Iowa and Illinois and Nebraska and Wisconsin miss two of the three big boys in the East, um, so that certainly gives them a leg up um, in the West race, but. Um, you, and then you've got the the typical Michigan Ohio State matchup. You've got Penn State Michigan State being famously moved to Detroit um, the last week of the season to accommodate television. Um, but really, um, I think it, it's the, the storyline is, is is that Notre Dame non conference and then um, Michigan has it has it pretty easy.
1: Andrew, you know, I I keep thinking about I can't help but think about USC and UCLA to the Big Ten. 2024 and beyond and you know I know have you done much thinking about that and how those teams might fare in that conference do you have any data or is it just a feel at this point
0: yeah I mean as, as a pac-12 fan um, I've thought about it a lot it was it was a very very hard day it's a very bad development um, I I think that it, it's ultimately I, I think they're both Going to be just fine. Um, it is a much harder league to win. Um, that that goes without saying, um, and that's just because um, you know not. It's not so much about the bottom half of the league, but but the Pac-12 since 2017 has had a really hard time producing elite teams, and um, the Big Ten typically has um, two or three of them, even if they're not necessarily national championship caliber. They're they're clearly top top six, top eight caliber, um, and. I think the the something that has frustrated me about that whole conversation and I hear this coming from their fans is they they dream about you know oh we'll be going to to Columbus and Ann Arbor and and you know State College Pennsylvania and Madison and all that's true but with a conference of of 16 teams those matchups are going to be spread out over many years so it's not like they're going to be facing um anything close to that gauntlet every year um, so I mean I think over over a period of time they'll, they'll hit all those road trips, but I, but it's not going to be a situation where they're playing all those teams in one year. And um, you know, frankly, I also think it's important to remind ourselves that those two teams combined have managed to win the conference once. Since uh, the league expanded to twelve in in 2011, whereas if you look at um, the Big 12 and losing Texas and Oklahoma, even though it's Oklahoma that's doing all that lifting, I mean, I I couldn't tell you what it is, but seven or eight or nine times since since 2011, Oklahoma's won the league, maybe seven. Um, So I think you know, um, if if USC and UCLA go into the Big Ten, they have a hard time winning the league.
1: That won't be anything new for them. They've only done it one time since 2011. All right, how do people get the schedules? I'll tweet out a link, uh, but is there an easy way that you tell people in passing how how if they want to order one of these schedules, multiple schedules, uh, how do they get them?
0: Yeah, um, send me an email at cfbscheduleposters at gmail.com, um, or you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at pdog206, P-D-A-W-G-206. Um, and um and yeah, if we could t- tweet out the link and i i 've got i 've got a pinned tweet um, with the link as well with, with with ordering information. And so, yeah, just, just get in contact with me. And um, I mean, I, at the end of the day, I, I, I love the banter. I love the interaction that, that comes from these. And um, definitely put a lot of effort into trying to make it as aesthetically pleasing and as informative as possible. And, and really, um, it just signifies a fantastic time of year, which is, which is these uh, summer months as we look forward to college football season.
1: Tomorrow, I'll be talking to Kalen DeBoer, Michael Penix Jr., Bo Nix, Dan Lanning. Uh, Certainly, Oregon, Washington is a big game on the Husky schedule. But give me an idea, the fan in you, which game do you have circled on that schedule? Oh, it's it's
0: the Oregon game, of course. Um, that that game, I mean, it's it's to, to me, it's it's one of the the best rivalries in the whole country. Um, I, I've certainly behaved in ways over the years, you know, where I've leaned into it pretty heavily. But the older I get, the more I really do just appreciate how. You've got these two powerful programs in the Northwest, um, you know, that that both have probably the closest thing that the Pac-12 has to kind of SEC level intensity with a a rivalry. And I've I've always – Ted Miller, formerly of ESPN, I've always appreciated how he talks about the rivalry over the years. And so it really is something that – you know, um, I, I think it's, it's it's one of the great rivalries in the sport. Um, and so I, I am uh, very much looking forward to that game.
1: Should be a great season. Andrew, I appreciate you joining us. Uh, thanks for, for your time. Thank you, John. Really good stuff. Andrew Percival, I will tweet out a link if you are interested in uh, picking up one of those schedules to put on your wall. Tomorrow it will be Pac-12 Media Day. You're going to want to be here, 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. Caleb Williams, Lincoln Riley, Dan Lanning, Jonathan Smith, Bo Nix, Michael Penix Jr., Jake Dickert, Washington coach Kalen DeBoer, Shador Sanders. Deion Sanders will not be there, but his kid will be there. We'll talk to Shador Sanders as he makes his debut on the BFT radio show. All of that tomorrow, 3 to 6 p.m. I hope you're there for it. It's going to be an absolute marathon for me. I'm hydrating right now. Leave it right here. you got the bald face, too. Obviously, Pac-12 Media Day tomorrow in Las Vegas. The show will be... Uh, live from Radio Row, where you will hear all of our big guests: Dan Lanning, Jonathan Smith, um, you know uh, Shadur Sanders uh, will uh, be uh, on the show. Uh, Lincoln Riley, Caleb Williams, but uh, a guy that we frequently bring on to talk about the Pac-12, John Wilner, is with us. You will be at Media Day, Wilner. What is George Kliavkoff going to do? He's got the morning session. What are you expecting in that morning session from from the commissioner?
3: Well, certainly no breaking news. It doesn't appear that they're going to announce a media deal. I think they, you know, they want to have the focus of this event uh, be the teams and the coaches and players and this anticipated season. But, yeah, I mean, you know what Questions and Sessions with reporters can turn into, right? So he's not going to be able to uh, avoid having to address the media rights situation, which is still unresolved. It'll be, to me, I'm wondering – how feisty is it going to get, right? Last year in L.A., it was a month after USC and UCLA had de- announced their departures. It was, what, a week or two after the Big 12, Commissioner Brett Yormark had said his conference was open for business. And Kliokov was pretty feisty uh, about about those issues, Uh, you know, in terms of the pac Twelve future and the Big 12 poaching. I don't think he's going to be as feisty this year. I think he's going to try to be very... Uh, even keel and
1: to uh, rest the media rights as little as possible and then talk about this season. The the media rights stuff, do you believe that the conference was close and something pivoted? Are you believing that narrative or are you believing that, you know, this is just taking longer? There's shifting, shifting sands in the media world. Or how are you reading the delay and the fact that we are still here uh, with less than a year to go in the current deal?
3: Oh my gosh, And what basically thirteen months after this whole thing started, I would never have guessed last summer that we would still be it would be unresolved uh, you know in the second half of July. Uh, I think it's a common of things, right? I mean, there have been some you know some some misjudgments on the PAC 12s end, been some things uh, unforeseen developments economically and within the media uh, the landscape. You know, and I get back to something that occurred to me earlier in the spring, which was I don't think they were, they got super serious until January. I think a lot of last fall was, you know, uh, waiting for UCLA and that situation to get resolved. And so they got serious in January when when a lot of media companies are doing layoffs and cost cuts. And so they just had to kind of be patient. Also, think that they thought there were several instances, including March and April, when they thought maybe it would get done, uh, and something happened that wasn't done. So it's been a lot, a lot of delays. Some there of their making, and some not.
1: Last year at Media Day, there was a lot of angst, a lot of anxiety. Of course, talk about UCLA and USC, and then. Uh, a lot of speculation about Oregon and Washington possibly leaving with the four corner school schools go will be the narrative tomorrow. Or what will the questions or anxiety be rooted in tomorrow? Has it shifted?
3: You know, I think the, the questions are going to be about why, why don't you have a deal? Right. Why has there been so much miscommunication? Why were the president saying what is that in March we think we're close? Right. Uh, why was uh another president Kirk Schultz and saying in in May, I think we're close, right? I think that's something that I'd like to hear from the commissioner is about the, the messaging and why have they kinda I don't know if they mishandled it or it's been you know just misinterpreted by the president, but to me that's that's what I want to know. Uh I'm sure that he will also get asked if schools are going to leave for the Big twelve uh, he will probably get asked about the Big Ten situation, but to me, the, the key piece is messaging and why there's been, you know, so many uh, cross-currents, so to speak, in what the presidents have said versus what the conference is doing at the negotiating table.
1: Dion Sanders, Coach Prime, announces that he's going to have a uh, follow-up procedure on that foot. That was bothering him, and he's having a second surgery. He will miss media day. Um, it's causing some angst. Some people saying, "Oh, how convenient! Colorado's not—he's not, not going to have to speak." How are you reading it, and what does the event lose without coding there?
3: I mean, it's a—it's a big loss in terms of the—the the spectacle, right? I mean, he was the pomp and the pomp and circumstance in a lot of ways. That was going to be a very, very interesting uh, media session for him on the podium. I don't I don't believe that there's a conspiracy here that, you know, Colorado's going to the Big 12, so he doesn't want to have to appear. I think that's ridiculous. He's had several procedures to uh, combat blood clots that he has in his legs, and my guess is he wants to be, his priority is to be healthy enough for the start of training camp, which is in, I, I don't remember exactly when Colorado started, but it's basically in two weeks. So uh, I just view it as something. Is something that he's got to get get done, so he can be on the field with his team.
1: We're talking to John Wilner, Bay Area News Group, Pac-12 hotlinecom If you want to read his fine work on the Pac-12 conference, Stanford's president has announced that uh, he will resign at the end of the fiscal year. I believe that takes him through August thirty first on Stanford's books. Um, you know, will that have an impact? I mean, you've seen it's, it's less than ideal the turnover. You've seen Oregon with three presidents. Oregon State brought in a president during these negotiations. This can't be easy for George Klyovkov.
3: No, I don't think so. And and he's got a lot of, you know, the 10 presidents who are going to vote uh, on the media rights deal and on expansion, uh, you've got, what, one, two, three, four, I'm trying to think on the top of my head real quick, half, almost half of them either are are on their way out or are very new, right? I mean, Cal's chancellor, uh, Carol Christ, she's stepping down. I think it's next year. Stanford's guy's kind of a lame duck. It's, you know, the turnover at the presidential level, it's like head coach turnover, athletic director turnover. And that's not great for, for the conference. They need as many experienced voices in the room uh, as possible, and there's a lot of turnover right now.
1: John, I, I uh, you know, I'm looking at, to talk some football tomorrow. I, I'm curious. Yeah, w- good luck. Yeah, I'm curious what you think of, you know, first of all, this season, and, and the five or six teams that everyone's viewing is top half of the conference teams, who do you think has, you know, the, the inside track to get to, if there is one, and who has the most questions to answer tomorrow at Media Day about about their personnel and their season?
3: You know, I think UCLA's got a fair amount of questions, uh, especially with the new quarterback uh, and just the kind of the way the way things went down last year for them with that late loss to Arizona. was super surprising. So I would say UCLA would be uh, near the top of the list for the questions. Uh, I've got some questions about Oregon and their defense. Uh, you know, Oregon State's a messing. Subject: Because if you, if, if you had transposed their success last year and their returning roster this year to any other team that's named Oregon or Washington or USC or Utah, like they'd probably be the favorite. But because they're Oregon State, they automatically get overlooked or kind of nudged into a secondary position. Uh, and I don't think Jonathan Smith is upset about that at all. Uh, it's great for motivation, but you know you could argue that they've got everything they need to to win the conference, uh, especially if they get solid quarterback play. But but nobody's talking about them as one of the elite contenders. They're kind of viewed as what, like the second tier, uh, you know, something in the fourth foot sixth position.
1: I'm looking at Utah and I'm looking at their schedule. It's brutal. They have you know they have Baylor. Uh, the, you know they'll play Florida. They don't skip any of the good teams in conference play. It, it lines up tough for Utah. Washington, though, down the stretch has this this gauntlet with USC and Utah and Oregon State in back to back to back weeks. Um, is it is it wrong of us to count Utah out? First of all, let's start there. I, it, do we bet against Kyle Winningham at any point?
3: No, that'd be a huge mistake, right? I mean, they have the uh, the culture uh, is is still there. You know, and that was evident when they were down early to USC and didn't buckle in the championship game. You know, my big question with Utah is not about the conference race. It's more about the playoff because they've got those huge two opening games, right? Florida at home and then uh, at Baylor. And you just don't know how healthy Cam Rising's gonna be coming off that ACL injury where he hasn't done much all off season. So to me and, and you can't lose one of those games if you wanna be a legit playoff contender. So to me that's a bigger question with Utah. I don't think there's any doubt that they're gonna be a major factor in, in the race for the conference title.
1: Washington's defense was so so. They didn't have a great run game. Michael Penix Junior carried him. He had a great season. But this year, as I mentioned, they have that gauntlet in November. I see them as a team that could be 7-0 and or 8-0 heading to those, uh, those tough games, but I have a hard time seeing them get through it. What kind of ride do you think Kalen DeBoer has in year two?
3: An interesting one because the expectations are completely different than they were last year, right? He came in, took over, and people are thinking, you know, if they can get 6-6, six and six, that's pretty good. And instead they rip off what, 11 wins, and all of a sudden, even though he's got a lot of the same guys back, It's a whole different dynamic because of those expectations uh, inside and outside the program. Uh, I think that their, their roster is better in, in some regards, you know, they lost some stuff on the offensive line. They lost some talent, but they should have some very good edge rushers. And I think that will help make up for what could be, you know, a secondary that needs time to, to mature. If you can pressure the passer you know, you have got a huge advantage, and Washington is loaded in that regard. And then, you know, if Penix could stay healthy, uh, he's certainly got all the playmakers he would need for them to put up 40 points or more. I mean, you know, that's the thing. The, whoever's going to win this conference is going to need to score 40 a game.
1: John Wellner, Bay Area News Group, is with us. Uh, the quarterbacks are uh, going to be talked about tomorrow. Bo Nix, Caleb Williams, Michael Penix Jr. will be there. Cam Rising will be there. You know, you whose interview are you most interested in uh, of the quarterbacks, even Jaden DeLora? Well, I would say
3: DeLora, which, you know, he just uh, was just reported that he settled a, a sexual assault case from high school uh, in which he had pleaded guilty. And here he is going to face the media. And, I, you know, I kind of feel like, you know, good for him and good for Arizona. They're kind of heading into the storm directly. Now, how is he going to handle the questions? I I have to think he's going to be well prepared, and I would like to think he plans to be accountable and and candid uh, when he gets asked about it. If he goes in there and just buries his head in the sand and refuses to answer questions, it's going to be a, a bad look for him and for Arizona. But that's kind of one I'm really looking forward to just because it's going to say a lot about the maturity of him uh, as a person, also I am very curious to hear what what Rising says about his recovery from the ACL, how much he's going to be able to participate in training camp, how ready he thinks he's going to be for that Florida game.
1: I'm looking for a surprise team, who in not among the the contenders: Utah, Washington, Oregon, Oregon State, USC, and maybe even UCLA. Uh, not none of those teams. Wilder, give me a surprise team that you think could crack the top six if things line up. I mean, to me, there will be. There's a surprise team every year, so somebody
3: is going to break into that top six, and somebody in the top six is going to have a worse than expected season. That, I mean, it happens every year. So I would put maybe Arizona because they got they got some good. You know, they've got Delora back. If he can uh, take the next step, I think Arizona could very well you know finish in that middle of the pack, fifth, sixth, seventh window. And Also, Colorado. Uh, they, Sanders has completely remade their roster through the transfer portal, but he does have, at a few positions, he's got some top-tier playmakers. So, you know, if they can be okay on the lines of scrimmage, I think they might have a shot. I just am not sure about a team like uh, ASU with a new coach, Stanford and Cal, I'm not sure they're ready. You know, Washington State, which you probably could, you know, put them in that top six, seven mix. I think they finished 6th or 7th
1: last year in the conference race.
3: I would certainly include the, the Cougars in there as a potential top-half team.
1: Wilner, well, the uh, before I cut you loose, the conference, the question, obviously, that will dominate Media Day will be, what is the future of this conference? I know you've set a, a line on this throughout the last year or so. Where are you at right now with Pac-12 survival and – and uh you know and how how are you feeling about the culmination of this media rights negotiation
3: well i mean i'm looking forward to that culmination <laughs> <Whenever> <laughs> it happens, that is for sure uh whenever happens i just hope it happens before the season starts right so it's not hanging over you and me and, and everyone um you know i have put the survival as a four point favorite over extinction and i think it's still right about there i i had thought they were going to get a deal done before media day. So it wasn't hanging over this event. And I think it could potentially be a bad look for the conference uh, and, and, you know, potentially have have some psychological effects depending on what happens on Friday. But at the same time, you know, the, the landscape, the sports media landscape seems to be shifting a little bit. And I think in some ways it's, it's shifting in the trolls favor you know all this situation that's going on with ESPN and looking for a partner the potential for Amazon or Apple to be that partner you know that helps the Pac12 anything that makes streaming more acceptable to mainstream sports fans and more a part of the sports viewing uh experience and culture i think is good for the Pac12 and that is clearly happening you know at the at the 40,000 foot level. So to me, you got almost competing forces. The macro forces are maybe moving in the Pac 12's direction, but the timing on the front lines is moving against the Pac 12.
1: John Wilner, Bay Area News Group, Pac12hotline.com. Wilner, I will see you tomorrow in Vegas at Media. Thanks, my friend.
3: Looking forward to it.
1: Thank you. No Coach Prime at Media Day. Uh, they are sending their defensive coordinator. Colorado sending their defensive coordinator in his place. It won't be the same without him. Is he dodging me? Does he just not want to be on this show? No, I think he's trying to uh, save his health and save his legs. So, no, Coach Prime, the event loses some luster, but certainly I think the country, as far uh, as far as college sports media, will be tuned in to George Klyovkov as he gives his statements. We'll have him on this show tomorrow, 3 to 6 p.m. I want you to tune in as Dan Lanning and Jonathan Smith and Bo Nix and Caleb Williams and Shadur Sanders and George Kleofkoff and uh, about 30 other personalities in the Pac-12 conference will be joining us. I want you to leave it here. Uh, Anna's coming up. But next, I'm going to give you the best of Media Day from last year. I went back and listened to all the interviews that I did last year at Media Day, 34 different interviews. I pulled some of the favorite cuts. And it's really interesting to see how the narrative has shifted for Dan Lanning, for Jonathan Smith, for George Kleovkov and Lincoln Riley, even and even Chip Kelly. You'll hear it all next. Leave it right here. You got the Bald Face Truth statewide on the BFT Radio Network.
4: Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 the game.
1: will be no Coach Prime at Pac-12 Media Day tomorrow. He is having a surgery. Uh, cue the 12-and-ons, the conspiracy theorists out there, who are going to read way too much into that. Um, unfortunately, I will not be able to tell Coach Prime to call me the truth. We'll have to save that for when he appears on this show. But there's going to be a whole bunch of coaches talking and a whole bunch of players talking. We'll have them all here, and it gets me thinking about what they said last year. Let's rewind, right? We love to rewind. It gets me thinking about last year's Media Day, right? We, we forget what they said last year. Will what they say this year be different than what they said last year? It got me thinking, and it got me looking into the archives of this radio show. And so I went back, and I pulled some cuts from Chip Kelly and Dan Lanning and George Kleofkoff and Jonathan Smith and Lincoln Riley and uh, Cam Rising and uh, – Well, let's listen in. This is what they said last year. Here is uh, George Klyovkov, Pac-12 commissioner. Keep in mind, USC and UCLA had freshly announced that they were leaving the conference. And Klyovkov got up on the stage, and he wasn't all collegial. He took some shots at the Big 12 conference and then ultimately uh, settled in for an interview with me. And it sounded a little bit like this. George Klyovkov, Pac-12 commissioner is with us. Uh, Media rights, revenue, access to the college football playoff. Which of those is more valuable to
5: the Pac-12? We need both, and we will have both.
1: You're confident of this? Confident. Uh, One AD told me, George is kicking ass. I'm trying. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, by the way,
5: it's because I've got lots of really, really good people working for me. It's not me. The...
1: You you said before in previous conversations you're a puzzle solver. I've thought about that because this, yeah. is, this is a puzzle.
5: Yeah, it's a Rubik's cube. Well it was it was before UCLA and USC. It was a complicated, difficult puzzle before that. It got a lot more complicated and more difficult in the last four weeks and a day. But that's okay. I'm built yeah. for this stuff.
1: Day 365, you're in Montana?
5: 364, 364, you're in Montana. (laughs) I'm in Montana driving to Idaho in an area that does not have cell coverage, and I get uh, several urgent text messages from my deputy commissioner saying, find a place with cell coverage and call me
1: it's Murphy's law I mean that's just how it works well, you know? I, think, like, I, I
5: think it was the second or third day of my first vacation on the job yeah. after a year how did um, that
1: fly with your wife like it, hey uh, she, I'm sorry she's
5: she's awesome she she's <laughs> seen me go through these things before she's you know fully supportive uh, I had to relocate back to Las Vegas because I really needed all of the opportunity to have connectivity and the computer and everything else so I left her up in Montana and Uh, came back to Vegas, and I've been working from there ever since, and then we're getting through it.
1: Uh, You said during your State of the Union that, you know, you're exploring expansion. Yes. You mentioned geography. You mentioned media value. I go to television households, go to a place like San Diego or maybe into the state of Texas. Is there anything else beyond that that is important to the Pac-12? I think the normal things that anyone would look at
5: are um, the – kind of media landscape and where it fits in the media landscape and whether or not you're adding a really valuable DMA or not, right? Then for us, we look at athletic competition because, you know, as the conference of champions, you want someone who's going to invest broadly in sports and be competitive in a lot of sports. Uh, so that kind of limits who you can look at. Um, we, we do have kind of a cultural and academic fit, which is important in the Pac-12, maybe more so than other places, but it's important to our presidents and chancellors. And remember, they're the ones who make these final determinations. And then I think what makes us different, at least from what I've seen recently, is we're actually gonna take into account what's good for our student athletes, right? Not, not that there are any schools in Boston, but we're not adding a school in Boston because we're not traveling kids to Boston to play games.
1: Interesting to hear him talk about the things that still linger. Media rights deal still out there. Also, expansion still out there. The tune has to be different tomorrow when Kliovkov speaks. He's got to have something to show for the last year and feel more focused than he did a year ago, clearly. But I thought it was interesting to kind of pull those two little snippets and let you hear a little bit of where the conference commissioner was a year ago. And, again, I'm really interested to see not only what he says tomorrow morning as he addresses media from Resort, Resorts World Casino in Vegas right on the Strip, but also when he joins this show, you know, we're going to get a one-on-one with, with the commissioner, you know, and I'm going to have some questions for him. I think they've totally mismanaged their public relations. And what, where will his messaging take off and where will it land tomorrow? That will be interesting to follow. Dan Lanning, the University of Oregon coach. Remember, he was a first-time head coach, first-time participant in Pac-12 Media Day a year ago. I asked him, what will we be talking about a year later? I asked him to uh, pull out his crystal ball and look into the future. Here's Dan Lanning in my conversation with him from a year ago. Right, Dan Lanning, one back. year from now, we're going to have the same interview. I'm going to play back what you say. What will we be talking about? Oh, man, what will be the big is, story?
6: That is... Uh... That is tough. Yeah, yeah. That's my job. Uh, yeah, that's a good. But that's Rattling a good question. You yeah. You know, I, I, I really don't know. I think uh, I'll probably be sitting here saying, "Hey, that was 2022. Yeah. We're worried about 2023 now, given the coach speak." Um, and you'll you'll be relaying back. Maybe we'll be talking about that spread of that Georgia game. You know? Maybe. Yeah. No. I'm I'm excited to see the future, but right now, at least for me, I'm trying to live in the moment. I'm trying to focus on today. Yeah. 24 hour wins. You know, that's what we're focused on. Uh, but, yeah, it'll be fun to replay it and see where we're at. What, right.
1: what's, what's your prediction? Um, gosh, I think we'll be talking about how, how the Pac-12 wants to do it a little different than others. Yeah. Like, you know, the, what's going on in the SEC and the Big Ten feels a little bit too much like pro football. And David Shaw said this earlier. He thinks there will be a correction back right? eventually in the next decade. He says let's talk a decade from now. Right. He thinks I think it comes back to geography because you had – the teams in the South, the teams in the East, the teams in the Midwest, the teams in the West. Yeah, uh, you, I think when you start messing with geography, you're fighting the forces of nature.
6: There's certainly some pieces of that that I don't know if everyone thought through, and uh, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. Yeah, um, yeah, sports forever changing right now.
1: All right, hey, I appreciate your time. Was this interview different? Was it different than the other? Different? Okay. Thank you, I appreciate, I appreciate that. that. Thanks, Coach. Absolutely. Part of my aim in doing Media Day interviews is to have an interview that is a little bit, if not a little different, a lot different than the other media members in Radio Row. And, you know, the, basically the, the the car wash that goes on is the coaches and the players from the teams go from radio station to radio station, from Phoenix to Seattle to our station, and, and uh, up on the third floor of Resorts World tomorrow as part of Media Day. Part of my aim will be, For my participants, who are literally glazed over from being asked the same dumb questions over and over again, to leave the interview feeling like they had a very different uh, interview than they got in the other places. On that note, Chip Kelly and I talked, and we talked about golf a year ago. Pac-12 Media Day 2022. Chip Kelly was fresh off playing some golf. I can't see him as a golfer, but he gave us some context and some background. Listen. You mentioned playing golf. I'm having a hard time seeing you as, a, like, a competitive golfer. Is that just me? No, like, are I'm you good?
6: I'm not good, but I'm competitive as I'll get out. So. You have fun I out just there? don't play. I do have fun. I yeah. learned that from uh, the Oregon great um, Peter Jacobson. Yeah. We played one day before his tournament, and Nick Elioti hit a bad shot. And we have not played golf since the following July, and this yeah. was, like, uh, March. And then uh, and Nick let out a bad word, which I'm surprised. I know that would surprise people. Yeah. And then Jake looked at him and was like, "Nick, you're not good enough to get mad.
2: Like <laughs> yes. just
6: let it go." Like yeah. he goes, "When was the last time you played golf?" And Nick was like, eight months ago." And he was like, "Then why are you mad? <laughs> why are you <laughs> mad?" His second shot, and he was. But it's I, yeah. I don't I don't let it frustrate me. But I we all try to get competitive when, no matter yeah. what we do. We just we don't have an opportunity to play enough. So.
1: I would not want to swing a club in front of Peter Jacobson. I, I
6: love loved it because Jake will help you. Yeah, and he's just such a. Jake's the oh, best, he's best people I've ever met in my life. Yeah. And he'll help you one way or another and and what you worry about with Jake is when he sees you swing and you just say I got enough I can't when yeah. he says you can't know good then you know you got a lot of issues. There's I can't been, fix that. There's been a couple of coaches that I've golfed with Jake and him and Jake said I got no I have no suggestions for you so. Funny,
1: uh, we had Peter Jacobson on the show and he said just that. He said like why are the rest of us getting mad when we hit a bad shot? We should just be grateful when we hit a good shot, like, you know, how difficult it is to be that consistently good. Uh, on that note, I asked Cam Rising, Utah's quarterback. He's been consistently good. A year ago, Pac 12 Media Day, Cam Rising joined this program, um, you know, team captain at Utah and the guy that ultimately led them to back to back conference championships. I asked him a very simple question. What's good leadership, right? I mean, there are books written about it. There's entire sections about this at your Barnes and Noble or your Powell's bookstore. What's good leadership? I turn to Cam Rising for the answer. You know, we look at leadership. What's good leadership in a locker room?
4: Uh, handling your 20 square feet. There's, there's nothing you can do that's more important than that. If you're not taking care of your business, then you can't tell another person, "Hey, you got to make sure you're doing this." If you're not, if you're not doing your homework, you can't tell another guy to do his homework. And that, and that's just that's just the case with football, and that's case with anything if you want to
1: lead. Sometimes it's the simple of answers, like just handling your business first and foremost. How many times do you see that on teams where you have players who are calling out other players and then it goes back and forth because said player who's doing the calling out has, isn't really taking care of his business as well. Uh, interesting to hear Cam Rising talk in in that context. I'll be interested to talk with him tomorrow too because we have a one-on-one scheduled with Utah's quarterback I'm interested to talk to with him about a couple things. One, there was a very interesting exchange with Cam Rising and Bo Nix, Oregon's quarterback, at the end of the Oregon-Utah game a year ago on the field. I want to know how well those guys know each other and what it is like for the quarterbacks, because it is a very different position playing quarterback. What is it like for them? Or Is it relatable for Cam Rising to see what Bo Nix is going through with injuries last year and for Rising to to also look over and see Bo Nix looking back at him when he has a season-ending injury or uh, a, an injury that caused him to have a, a surgery in the offseason. How healthy is Cam Rising as well? Is he going to be there in week one for Utah? Kyle Whittingham says yes, but Cam Rising will speak for himself on tomorrow's show. Lincoln Riley was a new guy a year ago, USC's head coach. Uh, I asked him about Mike Leach. This, again, was prior to the passing of Leach. He spoke about Mike Leach and his influence on him, and we also talked about quarterbacks, very transfer heavy. In you know, is that just how it's going to be in college football? Here's Lincoln Riley a year ago at Pac-12 Media Day. So you coach with Leach? I've had him on the show a ton. Oh. I enjoy talking to him. What did you learn from him? Oh,
4: a lot of things that are not relevant to anything. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, joke aside, honestly, in the game, I learned. Like, don't be afraid to think outside the box you know don't be afraid to do things different than everybody else's if you feel like it's right and uh, now Mike lives outside the box I try to just think outside of it occasionally uh, but he's uh, he's quite the character as we all know
1: you're you're in uh, you're about to start some practices and then of course we'll lead to a game you know what do you need to get done right away in practice
4: I just continue to come together continue to build on the foundation that we've set forth here in the last seven or eight months uh, the this practice period is a very, very important time for all teams, especially uh, a team with as much change and new uh, that we have. Uh, but I like our group. Our group has had a great summer, and they're ready to play.
1: There's going to be a lot made of you guys leaving for the Big Ten in a couple of years. It's uh, no, no player or coach played a role in that, and yet you're going to go into some stadiums, and people are going to blame you for it. What do you tell your kids?
4: oh uh, they're going to hate. They're going to hate us anyway. I mean, like that's that's what the road should be. They should be on you. So I'd be. I'd be disappointed if that made it any worse. I mean, I, I think that's that's one of the fun things about going on the road is you're you're the villain, you're the enemy. You have to embrace it.
1: Caleb Williams at quarterback. We're going to see him in the conference. What are we going to see?
4: Hopefully, a lot of touchdowns. You know, hopefully a guy leading the squad. Um, very talented player that I think is improving rapidly, and uh, so and and got a lot of great experience being in all those different situations that he was in last year. So he's he's grown a lot he's leading our team and i expect him to play at a high level
1: yeah and it's interesting there's i think there's seven transfer quarterbacks that will start this season is is this just how it's going to be from now on are we going to see transfer qbs
4: i think the qb world is different than any other position and i have a hard time believing it's that it's going to change i do it's uh when you primarily have just one guy that plays it just creates some interesting dynamics and a lot of times, where school like USC, you might add three or four of them stacked up that can play anywhere. Well, now they're going to go play other places.
1: So interesting to hear uh, Lincoln Riley, and and really, it'll be interesting to talk with him one year later about those very things. He's got Caleb Williams, the reigning Heisman Trophy winner, coming back. We'll also have Caleb Williams on tomorrow's show, uh, but you know he's going to have he's going to face going to the Big Ten Conference without Caleb Williams a year from now. So it'll be a very different process for Lincoln Riley. Be curious to talk with him about that. Jonathan Smith, Oregon State's football coach, uh, gave kind of a prescient interview on the show. We we foreshadowed what could be a breakout season for the Beavers, and he even brought up Ben Goldbrunson as a possible quarterback. Nobody was talking about Ben Golbrenson before Oregon State season a year ago, except Jonathan Smith. Listen here. You guys uh, went from talking about process to let's be competitive to let's win games and make a bowl game. What's the next progression?
7: Yeah, I think we want to win the championship. I mean, we want to go to Vegas and, and, and be in the Pac-12 championship game. Each year's new. We've made some real progress. Uh, we feel, you know, feel good about the progress made, but we've got a lot left. And each week, you got to play well to be able to win games. What I'm confident in saying is that each time we line up, we feel confident. If we play well, we can win, and we can win 12. 12 games or whatever it will take to get there. Um, but, again, what we, the progress we've made, it really means uh, nothing for uh, this coming season until you start playing. Yeah, it means nothing, but you got to feel good about it, right? Like, you got interest. Season. Look at the season ticket sales. with yeah. Even with a half a stadium, I think those tickets are going to be hard to come by. Yeah, there's momentum. There's no question. Season tickets as high as it's been in a long time. That stadium, you know, even coming to the games, I know our, it'd be under construction. You can see the progress and the momentum of – you know, a belief in what we're doing, and we have. We've, we've improved. The program's in a way better place than it was when we, we first got started. Um, with all of that saying, we know we got a lot of work to get it to the to place we want to be where we're going to Las Vegas for the championship. Jonathan Smith with us, Oregon State football coach quarterback
1: Chance Nolan, Tristan Jebia. are we ready to talk about that or you want to see
7: more in uh, fall camp? What, what I like talking about is I think we got a multiple guys that can help us score a bunch of points and win games. Chance has, you know, he had, did some really good things last year, some things he's got to be better at consistency and things. Tristan was playing his best football before he took a, a serious injury and it's a long time coming back. Both of those guys healthy uh, compete during August. Uh, ben Goldritson is a freshman we've had that he took another injury last year that held him back. I think he's got a chance to be a really good player. And so I'm trying to see it on the positive light of that uh, we've got multiple guys that we can score points with. He called it, didn't he? Uh, they had multiple
1: guys play quarterback and they finished the year with Goldrenson, who was very good as a starter. Who will start this season? I'll ask Jonathan Smith uh, tomorrow as part of Media Day, in a one-on-one interview you will hear right here. But I loved what he said. You know, prior to them winning 10 games, he said, we want to go to Vegas, we want to play for the championship. That message hasn't changed at Oregon State. I find that interesting. Tomorrow, 3 to 6 p.m., you'll hear it all, 2023 Pac-12 Media Day. I'll be live from Las Vegas. I want you to leave it here. you got the bald-faced truth statewide on the BFT Radio Network.
4: Back to the bald faced truth with John Casano on
0: seven fifty. The game.
1: It was a few months ago that Anna uh, told me about this this thing that um, it was about describing your job poorly. How, Anna, can you can you describe? for our listeners or explain to our listeners. I'm describing this poorly, am I not? Uh, Why don't you explain what you were talking to me about on Facebook, like something about describing your job poorly?
8: Yeah, it was kind of a creative take, encouraging people to try and describe their job in a way that was very literal uh, but also poorly. So, for example, there were hairstylists that were chiming in and saying, Um, they wouldn't say that they were hairstylists. They were saying that uh, all day long I stand on my feet wielding sharp instruments, cutting off dead portions of people's bodies. That's an example.
1: So somebody who has a food truck, maybe they sell hot dogs. Or maybe, like, they work a ballpark, they're a concession person, and they work at the ballpark, and they sell hot dogs. They would say, I walk around and watch baseball and throw weenies at people who give me money for them.
8: Yeah, something like that, something like that, yeah. Some of some of those descriptions can be pretty funny. All
1: right, so tell me, like, I, 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 I happen to think I have a pretty ridiculous job. Because if I try to explain it to people, like one time I did, I was on the phone with somebody who was in India. And I was trying to explain what I do for work to this person who was in India. And I wasn't getting scammed. I was just literally trying to describe what I do. And they said, you do what? And I said, I talk. I talk about sports. I write about sports. And the person on the end of the the phone was really struggling to grasp. Like, for me, I would describe my job poorly. I would say, I watch sporting events and write what I think about them. Or I criticize other people who are out working really hard, breaking sweats, and running around on the field. Or I uh, sit inside a studio and talk with nobody around me to lots of other people. And so that's how I would describe my job if I was going to describe it poorly. How would you describe your television anchor job if you were going to describe it poorly? Uh,
8: The anchor job would be I sit at a desk and speak to a piece of machinery, um, telling stories about what happened in an area during the day, or describing my job as a news reporter. I would say I rush to scenes where... Usually terrible things have happened and stand in front of them and ask people holding uh, a microphone what happened and what they think about what happened and how they feel about what happened.
1: I will do that or something like that tomorrow at PAC-12 Media Day. And I, it's, look, I have so much respect. Like when I see hardworking people holding a jackhammer, breaking a sweat, tarring a roof. We were in New York City, and I was watching people. There were some construction crews working in downtown, like in Manhattan. And I was thinking, like, the degree of difficulty of having to work in humidity and heat and in a busy city where you can't get, like, a truck up the street. I was watching the construction workers work, and I was thinking, job is so much harder than the job that I do, so much more difficult than the job that I do. Like, I I love the job that I do. And so – but I also think it's kind of ridiculous – that you know, I'm paid to go to sporting events. I'm paid to go, and I write and I talk about things, and I interview people, and I ask questions that are into me. Like it, I kind of think I have a ridiculous job. Can I say that, or like, will my employers here at the radio station go, "Hey, what, what's he saying? He has a ridiculous job." Like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not taking a shot at the industry. I'm just saying I kind of have a silly job if you think about it. Like, if I had to explain this job to like my great great grandparents, or you know who. two generations before they immigrated to the United States, and I said, here's the job that I'm going to do. I had a time machine. They would look at me crazy. They would, and it is ridiculous. There's many aspects of your
8: job that are ridiculous. Um, But I would argue that it also requires a unique skill set. Like, faced with the idea of going on radio five times a week and talking live, unscripted, uh, would terrify probably 98% of us. Like, there's a very small portion of the population that would look at that job description and be like, oh, yeah, sign me up for that. No problem. I've got the skill set that it takes to do that. So, I mean, and then on to put on top of that the writing, I mean, I, I don't know. I, th- I think it's a ridiculous job, but I also think you have a spectrum of unique ability um, and gifts to be able to do these different things.
1: I'm kind of like a specialist. You know, I'm, uh, I, I'm not, I, I, I get the skill set part, but I'm just saying, like, as I kind of look at what I'm about to do tomorrow and interviewing 29 different Pac 12 coaches and quarterbacks and players and uh, sitting in, like, flying to Las Vegas, sitting through the interviews, interviewing people doing the radio show, writing about what's happening at the Pac-12 conference. It's all interesting to me. Like, I love doing it. And and I love that, you know, people who are reading me at johnconzano.com are going to be able to go behind the curtain and find out what's really going on and get access to things that they can't normally get access to. And I love that the listeners of the radio show are going to get to hear Dan Lanning and Jonathan Smith and Bo Nix. And, you know, they'll get very different interviews on this show than the sound bites that they're going to see throughout the day – that are going to be born from, like, the group interviews. We're going to be going one-on-one with uh, the coaches and players, but I'm still struck by the fact that it's kind of weird. It's kind of a weird job, and I have had numerous times where I'm on an airplane, and somebody who's, like, got a normal job is sitting beside me, and they have a respectable job that they can easily explain. There's no questions, and as I'm talking about my job, I've even had people on a plane. I'm ex- somebody somebody's going, what do you do? What do you? And the guy across the aisle goes... Do they pay you for that? And I'm going, "Yeah, they pay me for that. What do you think I'm going to do?" Like, you think I how do you how do you think my family eats? Like, it's yes, they pay me for that. And in the end, uh I'm blessed. I feel blessed cuz I am that kid that grew up listening to KNBR 68 Sports Phone 68. Ken Dato had this late night show that was on after the San Francisco Giants games and I used to turn on that radio nice and quiet so my parents couldn't hear it so nobody would get mad at me nobody would come in and turn off the radio and I would just listen to the callers calling into the post-game show and I in my mind I was answering the questions and gaining knowledge and listening to a very caller driven radio show that had a lot of personality to it and so I think and maybe like dan patrick the the style of interviews that dan patrick do i really enjoy how he interviews people and i think we have those similar kinds of interviews on this show i think those two things really are what shape this radio show and what it has become and morphed into but i don't know no coach prime i digress no coach prime tomorrow's pac-12 media day i still think it's gonna be a great event i think there's gonna be a lot to talk about and and, hell, we might pull Rick George, his athletic director, on the program and and have a conversation about it. But I, let me ask you this question, Anna. You were a double major in college, broadcast major, international business major. If you didn't get into broadcasting, what would you be doing? Because I know we, we kind of broached the subject the other day when you were talking about how I underachieved in life and I could have amounted to so much more and all that stuff you were telling me that I can't forget. But, uh, like, what would you have done if you hadn't gone into broadcasting?
8: First of all, that's not what I said. What I was trying to do was that I was trying to pay you a compliment to say that, you know, you have all of these abilities and you really can do just about anything that you want and you're very inventive and innovative and creative when it comes to the business side of things, which I admire. Uh, For myself, if... I hadn't gone into investigative journalism. Uh, yeah, I would have pursued that international business career. I um, constantly look at companies, even now, and I look at their marketing. I look at their strategy. It's something that I bring up all the time. Just it, it's, it really interests me to see why it is that some companies excel, why it is that some companies fail, and you know the ideas that they have that push them Uh, beyond the norm and so that's you know I would love to be in that sort of position helping companies um, you know expand their marketplace and
1: just do their do their work better you just want to make it better I like that you make this show better I honestly you are my number one consultant and everybody who listens to the show always pulls me aside and goes you know I love the show particularly like it when Anna's on the show yeah 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 I hear it. I hear it. And here you are. You're good. You're good about, you're good with everything you do. Like everything I've seen you attempt, you're good at. You don't need to have a rebuttal for that. Kicks my butt. Board games. Doesn't matter. Scrabble. She does fudge the rules a little bit on Scrabble, but, but she, uh, she's really good at it. All right. Coming up, uh, you're going to do the five at five. Are you ready for the five at five? Now, now that I've given you a compliment, don't blow it.
8: Yeah. No pressure.
1: All right. So coming up, Anna's five biggest stories. What are they? Well, I'll tell you this. They'll have nothing to do with Pac-12 Media Day. We have a moratorium in the five at five of talking about the Pac-12 Media Day festivities. But uh, today's show has been fantastic, and tomorrow we will be at Media Day with a bonanza.
7: B.
2: F. F. T. B. F. T from the pack west center in downtown portland presented by high caliber millwrights here's john canzano with the bald face truth
1: i love the five o'clock hour the happy hour as we call it it's got good energy and as part of it yeah 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 i know it's your favorite part of the show uh, I have a question for you, Anna, before we get into the 5 at 5 and the 5 biggest stories that you see in sports. Yesterday it was warm. And and I don't really, because I'm in studio probably during the hottest part of the day, and I will emerge from the studio. I can see that it's sunny. I can see that it's bright outside. But I don't. it doesn't, like 93 degrees, 92 degrees, 94 degrees, doesn't hit me until after the show. Today we have a nice... You know, it was 80, mid-80s, upper 80s, 87, 88 degrees, I think, right now. What is your ideal temperature? Because um, as I ask friends this uh, over the years, I get a wide variance on what people think the ideal outdoor temperature is. If you're out there today in the mid to high 80s, belly aching about the heat, and you are also complaining about the rain in the winter, I'm going to have a problem with you.
8: My ideal outdoor temperature is 77 degrees. My ideal indoor temperature is 70 degrees. It's very specific. And I might have plus or minus one or two degrees on either of those, but because I am a woman, um, it doesn't vary much beyond those parameters. And you, you, you actually know this because I'm constantly adjusting the temperature in our home to match my ideal temperature, regardless of anyone else who lives in our dwelling.
1: I grew up in a household that did not have air conditioning, and I grew up in a place that was routinely mid to high 90s and into the low 100s. Down in the South Bay Area, where I grew up, Gilroy, California, the garlic capital of the world. Shout out to everybody who knows what that is or has passed through and said, gosh, it smells funny here. You could get over to the coast and, you know, 30 miles away from Santa Cruz or whatnot, and you're just south of San Jose. And, but it was, it was warm. And all we did was we shut the shades and we scrambled around in the morning and we tried to keep it as cool as possible. But I'm going to venture to say that it was in the low 80s inside the house most of the time, like in the summer. And I never knew it. Like I never had like the realization that I was living in a sweat box as a kid. And so. Now I don't mind it if you know it's low seventies in the house. Like I like it comfortable, but that's that can be comfortable to me. But Alex, I'm different than you. You said seventy-seven. No, that's too cool. I need a little more heat in my day. I'm gonna say eighty-two, sunny, clear skies. I need blue skies. I need a little few clouds out there, but I like about eighty-two degrees. As my daily high, 77. You grew up in the Pacific Northwest. That's you're you're showing your Pacific Northwest on that front. But all right, tweet at me at John Canzano BFT. Tell me your ideal temperature. I'm just crowdsourcing this because people belly aching yesterday. Oh, it was 93 degrees. 90. I'm like, you can't complain about it being in the low 90s. I guess you can, it, while simultaneously saying. I hate the rain. I can't wait to get out of this. Why do we live here? How many times do you say, Why do we live here in the course of the winter? Just enjoy Mother Nature and the fact that we're living on a planet that has some variation and, and we're living in a part of the country that's got a little bit of little bit of uh, you know, variability to it. Like you imagine like the weather person in those cities that it's always the same? Like you, Anna, you part of your newscast. You had the weather the meteorologist would come on and You got some weather here in the Pacific Northwest. There are parts of the country where they don't have any weather. And that's why we love it here. We love to
8: complain. That's, I think, one of the hallmarks of being a Pacific Northwesterner is the ability to complain. We have a very small range uh, in which we are actually comfortable. We complain about the rain. We complain about the sun. But especially, I think, on a day uh, like yesterday when it's hot and humid and sticky. Like hot... Generally I think that people can take but when it gets the humidity rises and you walk outside and you're immediately sweaty, that's when people start to go oh this is this is too much and you know the outdoor music venue that might you might have at a restaurant is moving indoors. We just we can't handle it. we can't tolerate it.
1: We're soft. I mean admitted come on you're, if you're moving indoors and it's low 90s, oh, we got to get the guitar inside and play outside of this kind of heat. We were in New York City a week or two ago, and it was actually humid there. It wasn't like what we think, air quotes here, humid is. I lived in Tallahassee, Florida. If you don't have to enclose your porch with a screen and worry about bugs and humidity and you take a shower and you walk back outside and you're like, why did I even bother to take a shower? Then you're not in real humidity. All right, let's get to the 5 at 5. You Are you ready for the 5 at 5? You have your five biggest stories ready? She is nodding. We present every day in this uh, segment of radio, the five biggest stories in sports. The five and five. The number one story as you see it, Anna. Well, New
8: Zealand found a way to win in the opening game of the World Cup. This is incredible, especially given what just happened Hannah Wilkinson scored in the 48th minute, and New Zealand stunned Norway 1-0 to open the 2023 World Cup on Thursday night, well, Thursday in New Zealand. Uh, This is particularly inspiring uh, given what just happened here, a day that began in grief after a fatal shooting in the city's central business district in Auckland. That was just steps away from the site of the FIFA Fan Festival. Two people were killed, five people injured, including a police officer. The 24-year-old gunman who worked at the building where that shooting occurred is also dead. Uh, Wilkinson, the star of that game, said it's really sad to happen, but thankfully, we did not let that shake.
1: I think we've seen cases like this with Las Vegas. You've seen cases like this with uh, Boston and other cities that come together in the wake of a public tragedy and you know you got a hashtag sports moment that happens in you know sort of brings everybody back together i can even remember back to nine eleven and you know the new york city and the yankees fans singing god bless america and you know sports often i think is looked to at looked at as a diversion i know i felt that way working at you know six different newspapers and Obviously, this radio station, I, I sometimes look around, and I know that everybody else is looking at the sports guy or the sports department as the toy factory. Even the New York Times writers that recently endured uh, the bad news that they were being replaced, the whole sports desk was being replaced, kind of looked at it as a sign of disrespect. Oh, the sports department's the toy factory. It doesn't really matter. It's not the same as the news, uh, news entity. But so often... Sports is looked to as part of the healing because it brings people together. And this is a great example of that. New Zealand comes together in the wake of, um, you know, a terrible tragedy. And uh, one of its teams, the Women's World Cup team, is, you know, serving as the glue. The number two story as Anna sees
8: Well, this is something that we've been talking about, uh, and it appears that it's coming to fruition here. Three U.S. senators are unveiling a discussion draft of a bill addressing NIL issues for NCAA athletes. So this is a bipartisan group of U.S. senators. They are uh, talking about providing a national solution to issues with athletes' money-making activities related to their name, image, and likeness, and to establish a set of rules for athletes' short- and long-term health care their safety, and their educational choice. The senators involved in this, Richard Blumenthal, a Democrat from Connecticut, Jerry Moran, a a Republican from Kansas, and Cory Booker, uh, a Democrat from New Jersey. And interestingly, these standards would be created in part and enforced by a new entity that would be called the College Athletics Corporation. It would not be a government agency, but would be granted investigative and subpoena
1: powers. couple things I want to unpack. First of all, impressed that this is a bipartisan thing. I, I've, I said this off the top of the show today. I'm not one of these people that looks to lawmakers to solve problems, especially in sports. But this is a problem that the conference commissioners have acknowledged they can't solve, and the NCAA can't solve. So... Yes, if you can get uh, uh, you know NIL back on the rails, if you can get uh, the ability to give subpoena power and investigative authority to the NCAA, all of a sudden you have something here that may be able to regulate uh, you know the wild west that we currently see unfolding. It's not lost on me that Cory Booker, who is one of the senators involved in this, played tight end at Stanford. He's an athlete, so he understands the world of NIL college athletics. Wrapped up in this draft, and by the way, there've been this is the eighth such draft that lawmakers have come forth with. So let's not let's not like imagine that this is actually going to be the law as it stated. But it looks like they're talking around these points. But included in here is the that all scholarships would be fully guaranteed. That means the coach can't pull your scholarship. Also, there would be medical coverage for college athletes that extends beyond their scholarship including some lifetime uh, medical coverage for athletes that have long-term uh, disabilities that are caused by their sport. And, uh, you know, it, would, it, it, it looks to me like this is a step in the right direction, even though I am normally uncomfortable with saying, let's may have lawmakers divert from health care, the economy, and, you know, our national security to deal with sports. It feels like this matter is big enough and important enough and complex enough that that it needs some intervention
8: it's interesting to me that the corporation would be charged with creating a formal certification process for people trying to represent dates in nil and it would also maintain a publicly available database showing a variety of data that schools would have to provide annually including the number average and total value of athlete endorsement contracts all broken down by sports, race, sport, race, ethnicity, and gender.
1: The number three story, as Anna sees it, uh, here in the 5 at 5.
8: Uh, the Yankees are having a tough time. Uh, they lost to the Los Angeles Angels again, 7-3, uh, to three, and this was not a pretty one. So they lost their three-game series for the first time since 2009 against the Angels, but it's the way they lost it, That is particularly notable uh franchi cordero had a really embarrassing base running blunder when with one out and nobody else on base he was thrown out at third on a ground ball to the shortstop so it's like come on you you know you even know like in little league you got to know what the situation is you should not be thrown out at third with one out and nobody else on base and what ensued was a, uh, I don't know, it's a temper tantrum. The relief pitcher threw a major tantrum in the dugout and even threw his glove at a dugout fan and then stomped on it. Tommy Colney, Conley not having a good day, having a major meltdown. There.
1: That, uh, when I first saw that story, Conley uh, throws his glove at fan, was was kind of the subhead that I saw. And I thought, oh, my gosh, like he threw his glove at a fan, and then I watched the video of it, and he just knocks over this giant fan that's in the dugout and throws a tantrum. The Yankees are struggling. The Aaron Judge has only played 49 games, and, you know, the Yankees are not used to being in this position. And uh, it it was interesting, as part of that temper tantrum that was thrown in the dugout, Aaron Boone, the Yankees' manager, sat Conley down afterwards and was counseling him. And the cameras were on him the whole time. It was just its really awkward, painful. You could tell there's a lot going on with this franchise moment. The number four story as Anna sees it.
8: The Colonial Athletic Association will change its name to the Coastal Athletic Association. This is according to Pete Thamel of ESPN. The conference name change comes as the league continues to expand its footprint, but also gives it an opportunity to, you know, modernize the name the CAA is not the first entity to move away from the term colonial george, george washington university recently retired the moniker and renamed its mascot the revolutionaries because you know glorifying colonialism is a, a little bit out of fashion these days
1: yeah and i thought that's the first thing that i thought when they said they were and by the way they're they're keeping the was it CAA yeah they're they're keeping that because they go coastal athletic association but uh, you know colonial to me the first thing i thought was we still have a conference called the colonial conference like so it feels like it was overdue so brand -brand. (laughs) rebrand this is one of these positive rebrands that you see you see some negative ones but um you see ones that don't work this one works works for the schools works for the conference makes sense the number five stores. anna sees it
8: uh, the golfers at the British Open are complaining about the bunkers. They're calling them penal. <laughs> they're saying that somebody annoyed the groundskeeper uh, because the bunkers are just so flat. And uh, the greenside bunkers this week, they're saying that you can even just drop two shots and that it's commonplace to see players balancing a foot or a leg on the fairway while they bend over to simply try to get their ball back in play. One of those moments uh, came on Thursday morning as six foot eight amateur Christo Lambrecht of South Africa demonstrated this. He did almost like a ballet stance to try and get his ball out of the bunker. You've got to look it up and see it for yourself because he definitely used his long limbs to his advantage. It's uh, pretty hilarious. He, he has this very creative stance. He's got one leg in the bunker, one leg extended on the fairway like this guy's got to be able to do that or something and uh he's got his his back like almost completely turned away
1: they need to do what what a lot of amateur players playing at courses across the state of oregon will do when stuck in a bunker by the way part of the problem is the bunkers being flat is you don't have a slope that makes the ball roll backwards if you don't you know if you're too close to the lip so it's it's a tough it creates a tough angle to get out of the bunker what they need to do is just look around and see if anybody's looking, and then just throw the ball back under the fairway. That's what most golfers in the state of Oregon, come on, if you're being real, will do when you get disgusted when you're stuck in a bunker. But um, yeah, golfers complaining hashtag first world problems. Anna, the five at five, fantastic, fantastic variety. Love that you were, um, you know, a little heartfelt with the women's world cup. Little uh, silly there, but did you see the video of that relief pitcher? Yeah, like he not only threw. His glove at the fan, like the actual fan that rotates, not a fan who paid a, bought a ticket to the game. But then the fan got knocked over, and he walked over, and he stomped on the fan. He just basically flattened the thing.
8: Yeah, there were a lot of jokes about it because people are saying, like, that's how the Yankees have been treating their fans lately. I'm just glad that it wasn't, like, at a human fan. But, like, this is, I don't know. Like, I love passion in sports. I love when people are competitive like this, but there's just few other professions where a grown man uh, walking into his workplace can behave in this way and everybody just kind of shrugs and goes, eh, it's just part of the game. I
1: think we've all had those moments, but I know in newsrooms, those high stress moments do tend to happen. I had at one paper I was working at a managing editor who took a phone call on deadline, kind of messed up. Whatever the paper was working on at the time, I had no idea. I'm over in the toy department, and uh, he, he he literally slammed down the rotary phone so hard that it smashed into pieces. And then he picked it up, just like the Yankee relief pitcher, and threw it on the ground and stomped on it. And you're watching a grown up lose their mind over you know a work incident. You ever see somebody lose their marbles on that in that kind of scenario?
8: Uh, yeah. I've seen a meteorologist lose their cool uh, and this is you know I don't I don't want to like malign all of the local meteorologists um, but there was one who lost their temper after there was a technical issue during the weather cast and was so frustrated that there was a fist punched and a hole left in the wall in the weather center after said weathercast i can't say i can't say uh but yeah you know there's those moments And, and maybe news and sports it has that in common there's it's a high pressure job i don't know but there's a lot of high pressure jobs out there like i would imagine like surgery neurosurgery is a really high pressure job and i i don't hear about many neurosurgeons uh you know throwing scalpels
1: Up next, I'm going to take the baton and run with it. Shohei Otani. How come everybody loves him? He has no haters. I'll talk about it next.
4: You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
1: Well, Shohei Ohtani has uh, had a blistering season, an amazing season. and It's not unprecedented. I mean, Babe Ruth pitched on the mound, uh, hit home runs. Uh, We're watching, though, Shohei Ohtani in this generation do something that we're not used to seeing. Uh, People want to call him the unicorn. Uh, Aaron Judge gave an interview, though, last night. The Yankees were playing the Angels. And remember, it was just a year ago that Aaron Judge was chasing Roger Maris' American League home run record. It took sixty one years for Aaron Judge to break that record. And uh you and I both know that we don't regard Roger Maris as the single season home run record holder. But in the American League, it's that's his record. And Aaron Judge broke it. And but Aaron Judge's hold on the mark could end after only one year as Shohei Otani is chasing it. Now, Judge gave an interview last night before the Yankees lost to the Angels seven to three. And he said, "quote It would be exciting for the game if he went out there and got 63 plus. So we'll see what happens." Aaron Judge legitimately sounded excited for Shohei Otani. Now, is he feigning the enthusiasm? I don't know. Is he is he saying what he's supposed to say? Otani went homerless last night. He's got 35 home runs in 94 games. He's on a pace to hit 60. Judge hit 62 last year, one more than Maris did in 1961. But uh, Otani hit 15 home runs in June and went deep three times in his first five games following the All-Star break. And Aaron Judge said, look, um, the biggest hurdle when you're chasing something like that is, is more mental than physical. He said, quote, he can hit 100 home runs or 80 home runs. He's got that type of talent just like so many other guys in this league, end quote. Does he really, though, 100 home runs? Come on. Here's what Aaron Judge said, though. Here's the rest of uh, his comments as is, is he was asked about Shohei Otani.
4: Stuff. But like you said, you'll see him go out on the mound and strike out the side and come up and, you know, lead up the inning with a home run. It's, it's, it's something we haven't seen for, you know, quite a long time or have probably never seen in this game what he's doing. So he's an amazing talent, you know, generational talent that you know, I'm you know, pretty blessed to get a chance to see him and compete against him on a daily basis.
1: So calling him
6: a unicorn is a
4: fitting nickname
1: or a description of him?
4: Unicorn? Yeah, I guess that works. I think that works.
1: Judge, obviously in there, he said he's doing stuff we've never seen anybody do. Um, Babe Ruth did it, but come on. But literally, when we're talking about company of two. By the way, through 49 games this season that Judge has played, he's hitting 291 with 19 home runs and 40 RBI. And he gave the interview, and obviously he's out running the bases, trying to get himself back into the lineup, but... But I kind of like I kind of liked it. I guess I appreciate that. A baseball's got a star in Shohei Otani that everybody likes. That's the thing, right? Like I can't. I don't know anybody who doesn't like Shohei Otani. When Barry Bonds was chasing the home run record and chasing Hank Aaron, there were fans that didn't root for Barry Bonds. Like a lot of people wanted to see greatness, and what, and what Bonds did was amazing. And we found out later it was the cream, the clear, whatnot. But Aaron Judge. As he was chasing Maris last year, I can remember people rooting against him. There were naysayers. There were fans that didn't want to see him catch Roger Maris, didn't want to see him have success. But is anybody rooting against Shohei Otani? Is he the most likable star athlete in any of the major sports right now? Because you can find people who maybe aren't fans of Patrick Mahomes, think he has too much. he's had too much success. And Tom Brady certainly pol- polarized a given room on a given day you can look at hockey and you can look at uh you can look at college football and you can look at major league baseball stars outside of shohei otani and you can find a lot of po- polarizing bar stool debates when it comes to uh star athletes i mean look back in history i was a big fan of joe montana but i knew dallas cowboy fans and raiders fans who didn't like golden joe and i certainly didn't like any of the dallas cowboys and aaron rodgers polarizes uh the fan bases and Even LeBron James in the NBA, like, you know, as great as he has been, a generational star, a certain Hall of Famer, there's a faction of people who are just turned off by the fact that LeBron is LeBron and it's, you know, kind of this act. Part of Otani's greatness is what he's doing on the field. And certainly pitching it the way he's pitching it, hitting it the way he's hitting it, it, you know, he is a unicorn. It's different. And it's fun to watch. And it's great for baseball. But I also think there is a certain class that he's got, a certain dignity. Maybe some of it is the language barrier and the fact that we don't hear Otani talking about himself in the third person or or talking about what he's going to do or announcing that he's coming back for another season, as LeBron did in the last month or so. But it's interesting for me to kind of watch people. And I don't know, maybe maybe, uh, free agency, if Otani ends up leaving the Angels and he goes to the Red Sox, or he goes to the Yankees, or he goes to the Giants. Maybe maybe he makes enemies. Maybe as he becomes more quotable, more well-known, as he attains greatness and more success, maybe part a segment of the Major League Baseball fan base will turn on him. As Aaron Judge said, records are meant to be broken. But in the case of Shohei Otani, the thing that I think is interesting is kind of the broken record that the chorus has been When it comes to the support of Shohei Otani, everybody loves what he's doing. Everybody's rooting for him. Can you think of a more galvanizing sports figure? Do not try to give me Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan had haters. Don't give me Wayne Gretzky. He had haters. The only approximation that I can think of that comes anywhere near what Shohei Otani, the relationship that Shohei Otani has with fans, the only thing I can think of is Michael Phelps. In the 2008 Olympic Games, I was there covering Phelps in Beijing, and it was interesting to watch the Chinese citizens who were at the pool and around the country, in in China and around Beijing, they were all rooting for Michael Phelps. They appreciated his greatness. They liked him. Part of it was I think that China wanted to have the greatest Olympics that had ever been put forth. I think it was very important to the Chinese citizens that – that uh, they had this wonderful Olympics, that was uh, a showcase of all the great things. Uh, you know, the greatest athletes in the world and the greatest venues in the world. And the crow's nest was over the top, and that that uh, water venue, which was shaped like a cube and changed colors on the outside of the building, was amazing. But you know, inside the building in the pool, Michael Phelps was swimming, and he was doing something that nobody had ever done. He was winning at a clip that nobody could match. It was true greatness.
6: He's going to get his sixth olympic gold here at these games and is he going to make it a perfect 6 for 6 with world records
1: it appears the answer to that is yes 154 23 Dubs needs to get by Kevin and he was saying all the right things and he became very likable
2: uh, it was fun um, you know this is you know something that you know I was shooting for and wanted to get. Um, You know, this is, uh, it's been a lot of hard work that that Bob and I have worked together to get here. And uh, I mean, I'm I'm thankful everything turned out, you know, pretty much perfect Um, from, you know, having great teammates, uh, unbelievable teammates. you know, to, to have in, in, in all three of our relays to swim together as one, um, the 100th of a second, the 100th fly. Um, you know, it, it, every, every moment that I've had so far in and out of the pool will be with me forever.
1: Like there may have become a point after the Olympics when the public turned on him and said, okay, you've had your success. We kind of like to do that, don't we? We build up athletes. We root for them. We cheer for them. We talk about how great they are. And in the end, uh, you know, once they've had some measure of success, we go, okay, you've had your fun. It's time for somebody else to have some success. Maybe that helped that had happened a little bit with Michael Phelps, but this Shohei Otani thing is interesting to me. I find it fascinating. I don't know. Tweet at me at John Canzano BFT. Tell me the the athlete that you find the easiest to root for. Because I think that's what Shohei Otani presents. It's not just that He when he's on the mound, he's fantastic. He's dominant. And it's not just that when he's batting, he's fantastic. And, you know, he's chasing the American League home run record. And it's not just the fact that he's got a swing that is sweet and pure. And it's not just that he appears to have fun when he's on the field. He's joyful. And maybe it's maybe a little bit of it is that we're watching him struggle on a team that, you know, we're watching him struggle with his limitations and we're watching his team struggle a little bit. And Frankly, isn't it a little bit relatable to see what he's he's done? But I I just think there's a joy that he's having on the field and a level of success and a measure of success. And frankly, the fact that the vast majority of Americans and international fans who are watching Major League Baseball have never really heard Shohei Otani interviewed, never heard him talk much, really don't know anything about him. They just see him play. They see him smile, and, and that is a universal language, that joy that he's got on the field. A lot of fun to watch. Now, do you believe that Aaron Judge really wants Shohei Ohtani to break his record? Uh, you know, I think Aaron Judge is a little bit relieved that he's on the other side of this thing, got his free agent contract and got his money, uh, and, uh, you know, he's got the American League record, and I think he knows how difficult it is to chase a record like that. But uh, I, I want to believe, like, I want to believe that Aaron Judge really is rooting for Shohei Otani, there's something redeeming about that, watching an athlete who's not, you know, backbiting or rooting against somebody or trying to undermine, uh, you know, an athlete, a fellow athlete, a star athlete in particular. And, uh, you know, I, I guess it's just it's it's a nice moment for baseball, but it's a nice moment for sports in general. All right, coming up, uh, I'm going to talk about tomorrow's Pac-12 Media Day. I am all kinds of fired up about Media Day. And a uh, little bit disappointed that we're not getting Coach Prime. And by the way, I don't know if you caught the news. Philip DiStefano, the chancellor at Colorado, gave an interview with uh, one of the Denver newspapers, and kind of put a uh, put an end to uh, the 12 and on conspiracy theory stuff that is floating around out there about Colorado. Says that it's Colorado's intention to be into the into the Pac-12 conference, and that uh, they, you know, obviously the presidents and chancellors meeting today, and. George Klyovkov in the Pac-12 moving towards a resolution, which uh, I think we're all ready to have happen. I know Anna said this to me last night. She said, "I'm so sick and tired of this stuff," and I'm tuned into it. And obviously, it's my job, and I'm supposed. To, I, I'm just so I'm tired talking about it, to be honest with you. So tomorrow's going to be great because I think we're going to be able to talk some football, some college football, in tomorrow's show. And I'm going to try to, other than maybe the George Klyovkov interview. Going to try to just talk about the football teams and the football players and the coaches and try to get, um, you know, try to get to the bottom of the kinds of things you want to know. So you've seen, I tweeted out yesterday, tweeted out last night my schedule for Media Day, the 29 interviews that I will be doing. If you have a question that you want me to ask one of the coaches or somebody who's on that roster, look at my Twitter feed, at John Canzano BFT. Go to my Instagram, at John Canzano. You can see the list of interviews that I'm going to do. And uh, just uh, reply to it, and, and uh, I'll, I'll give that a look before I start the interviews tomorrow morning. So uh, it, it should be a really fun day. It should be interesting. It's always fun. I love that this radio show has got the, uh, got the uh, you know, what is it, the mobility. We've got good mobility. We move our feet. Uh, we go where the story is. So we will be in Vegas, and you will be in Vegas by extension of that. And I'm really excited about that and fired up to see it. All right, so coming up, uh, I'm going to recap some of what is going to happen tomorrow. Uh, we had a great show so far. John Wilner was fantastic. Andrew Percival was great talking about schedules. Um, Anna was lights out as always. Uh, you know, when I run into you, I know what you say. You uh, will always stop me in the grocery store, in the gym, wherever we are, and you'll say, hey, love the show, especially when Anna's on the show. My feelings aren't hurt when that happens. It's, it's not all about me, just like Aaron Judge, you know. I'm happy to see... Everybody having success, and I'm just glad that you're here. All right, leave it here. You got the bald face truth statewide. We got a big tomorrow, big Friday. I'm hydrating on this commercial break. When I come back though, I'm gonna lay it out for you. What am I facing? What is the gauntlet for tomorrow? And uh, I want you to go through it with me. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Back to
4: the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 the game.
1: Have I told you yet that I'm excited about tomorrow's Pac-12 media day? Literally, I'm going to do something I've never done. I'm literally just going to pull up my schedule for tomorrow, and uh, we can go through what is going to happen so you know. uh, Caleb Williams, USC quarterback, will be with me on tomorrow's show, as will Arizona quarterback Jaden Delora. Really interested in talking with Caleb Williams about, um, you know, this season, this final season of his college career, it appears. And, his fingernails in the Pac-12 championship game. And, you know, I want to ask him, too, what Oregon State did to him last year to stymie him at Reser Stadium. I wonder if he'll talk about that. Will Caleb Williams be able to give a tip of the cap to Oregon State for what they did to him at Reser Stadium last year? Because they played him like nobody else did. They gave him fits. And I want to know what was it. Was it the defensive backfield? Was it a scheme? Was it the crowd at Research Stadium? Was it all of the above? I want to ask Caleb Williams that. That's that's important to me. Uh, Arizona quarterback Jaden Delora will be on the program as well. He uh, recently settled a sex assault case that stemmed from his time in high school. Super uncomfortable with this. I'm uncomfortable. I'd be uncomfortable as heck if I were an Arizona fan with this guy being the quarterback. And I am surprised that Arizona is bringing him to me today. And I'm further surprised that they're going to sit him down with me for what should be about a 10 minute interview. That's what I'm slotted for. But I'm going to get right to the point with him. I'm going to press him on that issue and talk to him about my discomfort with him. I want to hear what he has to say about it. I'll give him a fair shake, but, you know, as as you know, you guys know, I have daughters. I'm a person, and I want to feel good about the sports teams that I cover. I want to feel good about the sports teams I root for. And I can't imagine if an Arizona fan right now, how they would feel about having Jaden Delora in uniform and, So many questions up in the air. So uh, I'll ask Jaden Delora all of that stuff. Uh, Also, uh, other players that will be on the show, Bo Nix will be on the show. Excited to talk to Oregon's quarterback about his season, what brought him back to Eugene, what he's thinking in this this final year. What did he get from the Division Street Collective to bring him back? Will he talk about that? Will he go into any of that? We'll talk to Bo Nix on the show tomorrow about that stuff. Travis Hunter, Colorado's uh, two-way threat, cornerback, wide receiver. You know, it's going to be an interesting year for Colorado. And with no Coach Prime at Media Day, bummed about that, but I haven't made that clear on today's show. For those of you who missed the news, yesterday, uh, Brian Howell of the Boulder Daily Camera reported that uh, Coach Prime is going to miss Media Day because he's having a surgery. He already had a surgery on his leg. He's trying to save his legs. And I uh, don't blame him for that, so put away the conspiracy theory. But, um, it you know, it, the event loses something without Coach Prime there, no doubt. And I was really looking forward to interviewing him. So I hope he's well, hope he gets well, and then let's get him on the show, get him back on the show as quickly as we can. Uh, other players uh, that will be on the show, uh, Michael Penix Jr. will be with us. I'm excited to interview Washington's quarterback. That one should be fun. Similar questions to Bo Nix. What did he get to come back? What drove him to come back? What went right for him last year at Washington? And now, different season for Washington, both for Kalen DeBoer and Michael Penix Jr., who will be both be on the show. Washington's coach, Washington's quarterback, how different is this season when you frame this season with the reality that there are huge expectations for Washington. They flew under the radar a year ago. Nobody expected anything from Washington. Everybody said they're coming off uh, a four-win season. Jimmy Lake got fired. Kalen DeBoer, uh, what are the expectations? Can he get to a bowl game? I remember we were talking about that last year on Media Day. Can you get bowl eligible? Now the question, uh, much bigger for Kalen DeBoer. It's not about bowl eligibility. It's about, you know, uh, and Michael Penix Jr. It's not about bowl eligibility. It's about can you sustain? Can you take another step? Can you get to Vegas? Can you dream about the playoff? You know, can you, get, can you turn in an 11-win season? And especially given Washington's schedule down the stretch. Bloody November. For, for Washington, it you know, USC on the road, Utah at home, Oregon State on the road, and the Apple Cup, that's your that's your November if you're Washington. And, you know, Washington could be 7-1 and at that point, 8-0. I mean, depending on how they play in that Oregon game earlier in the year and heading into that final stretch, uh, it could be really interesting for Washington and Kalen DeBoer and Michael Penix, Jr., uh, I also want to talk with some of the coaches, of course. We're getting all the coaches on tomorrow's show and Pac-12 Commissioner George Kleofkoff. Dan Lanning will be with us. Oregon's coach, uh, Jonathan Smith, Oregon State's coach, will be on the show. Cal head coach Justin Wilcox will be with us. Arizona's first-year coach Kenny Dillingham will be on the program. Chip Kelly, as he is every media day. This is my last media day with Chip Kelly. If UCLA's going away and Chip Kelly doesn't come back to the Pac-12 conference at some point, Probably not going to have Chip Kelly in a one-on-one setting. Will, will he get wispy-eyed in our, what is our final interview? I'm going to tell him that. This could be our final one-on-one. I'll bring some Kleenex for Chip Kelly. Uh, Lincoln Riley will be on the program. USC's head coach, Jake Dickert, Washington State's head coach. I think Washington State and Arizona are the two teams that I would circle as having the potential to, if they put everything together, to surprise a little bit. Nobody's expecting very much from Washington State. Nobody's expecting very much from Arizona. And I think both those teams, for different reasons, could be decent. Jed Fish, Arizona's coach, uh, along those lines, will be on the show. Also, Kyle Whittingham, Utah's coach on the show. We'll have our normal talk about good culture. and I'll try to make Kyle Whittingham uncomfortable. He's very difficult to make uncomfortable. Talk about... Everything away from football, he handles it with grace. You talk about football, he handles it with grace. You ask him hard questions, he handles it with grace. He, uh, I think he's been around the game too long and seen too much. There's not much that phases uh, Kyle Whittingham. So all of those guests on tomorrow's show, and I'll tell you what, like I, I will make sure I'm hydrating. Make sure you follow me on Twitter. If you're following me on Twitter, I'm going to be giving you kind of throughout the day from about 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. tomorrow I'll be peppering you with video and photos and my writing at johnconzano.com. I'll have a lot to say, what things there are being said away off camera, away from microphones. I'll have it all. So, you know, look, I, I aim with my writing endeavor at johnconzano.com to give you sourced, in-depth reporting and commentary you can't get anywhere else. It's my job at an event like tomorrow, even with television cameras and Radio Row— to take you somewhere that you can't go with my writing. So if you're interested in that, go right now to johnconzano.com, grab a free subscription, grab a paid subscription, whatever works for you works for me. And in real time tomorrow, as the interviews are happening, as I'm seeing things, as I'm reporting, I will be posting multiple times throughout the day. And in real time, you will receive that in your email inbox. It's part of the aim with this new endeavor. One of the things that I didn't like, Uh, being at a static, mainstream, traditional news publication was sort of the archaic way that it is distributed to you. So I have the ability now at johnconzano.com to blast it to you immediately in your email inbox and immediately online, and you can get it in real time, and you can read it as soon as you have time to read it and see it, and you can be in the know. So if you want to go behind the scenes at Pac-12 Media Day, the uh, couple of few things that you need to do. A, make sure that you are subscribed at com, Free subscription, paid subscription, get what makes sense for you, and we'll work together. The secondary thing is follow me on the socials, at John Canzano on Instagram, and at John Canzano BFT on Twitter. And also tune into this show 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. And you will be locked in and you will uh, have access to everything that is going on as part of Pac 12 Media Day Palooza in Las Vegas. I'm glad the event is in Vegas, but, you know, even though it's like essentially the face of the sun, holding the Pac 12 Media Day in Los Angeles did not make sense even last year as UCLA and USC were defecting from the conference. And remember, last year, the athletic directors at at USC and UCLA were not invited to the event. So you had the football coach, you had, you know, the football players, you had you know, USC and US UCLA personnel, but you didn't have the ADs welcome at the event. Now, there are a lot of ADs. All 12 ADs will be circulating around the room. One of the other things I'm going to try to do, even though they're not slotted for interviews, is I'm going to try to get some time with Scott Barnes, the Oregon State Athletic Director. How is he doing? We'll get a check-in with him and find out, you know, that whole experience that he went through, having the heart incident and You know, it was a near-death experience for Scott Barnes. How is that shaping his workload and his perspective about life as he comes back to work and, you know, as they prepare to open Reeser Stadium? It is sort of the crowning achievement of his tenure as the athletic director in Corvallis. So I'm glad that Scott Barnes is all right. Like, there's a part of me that, you know, you have a working relationship with someone. I get to know Scott Barnes. Get to know Rob Mullins at, at Oregon. Get to know Scott Lakeham at University of Portland and, and John Johnson at Portland State and and Jen Cohen at Washington. And, uh, you know, you get to know Martin Jarmont at UCLA and Rick George at Colorado and, you know, Mark Harlan at Utah. And so, you I, you know, Pat Shun at Washington State and Dave Heakey at Arizona. And I get to know these people. And, you know, you have a working relationship with them. But I got to tell you, like, I'm just going to be really happy to see Scott Barnes and talk with Scott Barnes, you know, whether it's media day or in during the college football season. Because uh, above and beyond all of that, you got human beings involved here. And so it'll be fun, I think, to have a conversation with Scott Barnes. If he is near Radio Row, I will pull him on the show and we'll do an interview with him. And Rob Mullins, same for him. A uh, couple media days ago, Rob Mullins was just meandering around. He sat down at my radio booth and we just had a conversation about his kid. You know, his son now is headed off to to go to college this summer. He's going to Michigan. So maybe we can pull Rob Mullins on the show and have a conversation about what that is like to kind of watch your kid matriculate and grow up. I know what it's like, but he's going to be dropping a kid off at college. And so we'll try to get Rob Mullins on the show and talk to some of these ADs as well as part of media day. So, again, tune in 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. tomorrow. Tell your friends to tune in. There will be nothing like it. There's This radio show is going to have access that nobody else is going to get. Make sure that you're subscribed at johnconzano.com and make sure you're following me on social media. The rest takes care of itself. We're going to have some fun with it. All right, uh, for Stephen Vaughn, for Judah Newby, for all the interns that are scrambling around, uh, I want to wish you a happy Thursday. Tomorrow Friday show will be lights out. Put it on your calendar, and I will catch you 3 p.m. tomorrow. The bald-faced truth is not here for a long time, just a good time. Have a great night, everybody. Appreciate everybody who listens to this radio show.